My name is Paul Waller and I'm a horror movie addict. During 2020 and 2021, the workload for my band and my music management job slowed right down. And at the same time, I discovered the movie social networking platform called Letterboxd. So I decided to fill in the gaps of my horror film knowledge and within one week, I was averaging three a day. Uh, I'm going to stop it right there because little amendment when the results came back from Letterbox this year for me, it said it was 2.9 films per day. This podcast is the result of that horror compulsion. This is a year in horror. Welcome, one and all, to A Year in Horror. First things first, I launched the A Year in Horror Patreon page on the 1st of Jan, and I want to send out a big, magical mind wave of thank yous to all of those people that have supported the show so far. As I record, we are now a week into this, and I've got to admit, I just get so excited when that ping happens, and it tells me someone else has signed up. Thank you so much. I really, truly appreciate it. Uh, You have a choice. If you haven't done so yet, this is how to do it. You've got a choice of the £3 tier where you can just support the show. Simple as that. Thank you very much. Or there is a £4 tier where you can support the show. Thank you very much for that. But you can support the show whilst listening to that extra content, which does include a monthly radio show where I play music and I talk briefly about some of my favourite scores in horror. And also there are some extended chats on there currently with various podcast guests. I also recently put up my 2021 Horror Top 10 and coming up in the next few days, we've got a QA. and uh, Plus, I'll be dipping my toes into video nasties. That was good. I've started doing that already. That'll be coming up soon. Also, there's going to be an Uncle Acid and the Deadbeats thing going up there. All sorts of crap. It's good fun. Love it. Come and join in. It really does help the show out. So, it's patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. Thank you in advance. A little bit more housekeeping though. I'm not going yet. Elizabeth Thompson emailed me in with a comment on the 2004 episode that came out on the 2nd of Jan. She thought I'd lost it a bit by putting Passion of the Christ at my top spot. But she did say that she also gave it a go after I put my case forward. And she said this. So I'm going to quote her. I still don't think it's horror. I don't know what it was, except to say it was unusually cruel and bloody. It made me feel sick at points. Well, Elizabeth, all I can say is thank you for writing in, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. Also, Edward Penny got in touch via Twitter, and he let me know that he caught up with every episode. And the reason why I bring this particular one up is because that hit me in such a cool way. I loved hearing that. He discovered it later on, and he went back and he listened to the lot. Bloody hero in my book. 
But for right now, you've clicked onto this podcast that is about to deliver you part one of the 1950s rundown. Imagine that, the whole of the 1950s. And again, straight away, I've got to let you know, just between me and you, a whole lot of this felt like homework. Just like when I did that 20s and 30s episode a few months ago. The bad movies here were really bad. And as you know, A Year in Horror is a list show. And when you pass 70-odd films, in that list, it's really difficult to know where you should place the next one that comes along. I've started having to make notes on every single film that I watch now. But again, secretly, I sort of love it. But not to slag the 50s off too much, because there are several all-time classics amongst this lot for sure. Uh, To make that assessment, I watched a total of 102 horror, sci-fi and fantasy movies for this episode alone. But you'll see that it's only when I reach number 13 in the chart that I actually begin to hit the 7 out of 10s and above films. And that's crazy. Clearly, I'm not a massive fan of this era. So, how do things work? Well, for those new to the show, here's going to be a quick guide to what A Year in Horror is all about. This is a podcast where each month I choose a year at random, and I run down my personal favourite films of that year. Some would say that is an easy concept to grasp, and every now and again people do agree with my thoughts, but mostly listeners think my brain plays it a bit loosey-goosey with the accepted horror lore of what is objectively great or not. Also, if I'm covering a film that you don't like, that you don't care for, or that you would just like to skip, then by all means, the time codes are in the notes, but just be aware, when you go there, it also will act as a spoiler for what is coming up next. Each episode, I am joined by a stack of guests and they help me wade through all the most interesting films of the bunch. So today, we have podcast regulars, photographer, filmmaker and podcaster Benjamin Bowles. We have musicians Paul Chanter and Graham Bywater. Plus, of course, we have astronomer Mark Canali. As for special guests, we are joined this time by journalist Kaya Palmer and also graphic artist Sister Hyde. Right, we're almost there. The definition of horror that I use is sometimes considered pathetic for those gatekeepers with a more rigid idea of what makes a horror an actual horror. And sometimes these pathetic choices of mine, they make it to the very high reaches of the chart. So I'd usually say prepare yourself to get proper triggered. But once again this month, things almost look as you would expect them to look. So maybe just no one's going to email me in and call me a knobhead this month. We'll see. We'll see. When you make it to the end of this episode, I'm going to be picking out from a bag at random the next year that I've got to tackle for the next month's edition of the podcast. I won't go through them all here as I usually do because there's way too many now, but you can just look through the back catalogue of episodes and you'll see the years that we've already covered and I'm going to jettison all those from the bag when I put my hand in and rip a year out for the next one. Also, you might be thinking that, hang on, 102 films... That's not enough to judge a whole decade in horror. Well, shut your mouth. I actually had 105 lined up, but I couldn't source three of them. Uh, The Whip Hand, couldn't find that. Abbott and Costello meet Jekyll and Hyde, I couldn't find that, thank God. 
And then the final one is Lust of the Vampire, which I really did want to find. I think that's a Frida and a Bava one. The reason I wanted to get that is because it's known as the first talky Italian horror film. I was gutted I couldn't get it, but I will. I will get there eventually. And here are some of the rules that I followed to create the show. I've got to have this cut offline somewhere or else there'll be a thousand films that I have to do for each one and we'll never get an episode out. So I use the scores on Letterboxd as a rough guide. All right, okay. It's getting complex, I know, it's tricky. A movie needs to be looking at getting a three out of five score before I'm going to watch it. And a good example here is the oddball Roger Corman flick, Attack of the Crab Monsters. This one scores a close but no cigar 2.6 currently on Letterboxd. But just because it's a Corman movie, it didn't mean that I couldn't miss it. There was already so many in the pack and this was a really low rated one. Because there wasn't any other angle for me to latch on with it, I just didn't bother. But sometimes there are exceptions to this rule. 1956 saw the release of The Black Sleep and that only scored a 2.9 on Letterboxd. But I watched it anyway because I love the poster. Of all things, a poster got me in. That iconic artwork has been with me for years. I've always been enticed by it and doing this show just gave me the excuse to lose myself in it. Admittedly, it wasn't great. I want my 82 minutes back. But sometimes that's just how I roll. Here's the most important thing. I'm simply a fan. I am an enthusiast. I'm not Kim Newman. I don't watch these academically. It's just a deep love of mine, a passion. So if I miss something out that you're passionate about, something that you love, let me know. Also, if you pick up a great tip from me, again like you have been, thank you so much, let me know. It's always good to hear from you and I always get back. So, that being said, feel free to contact the podcast. You can follow me at WallaNotWeller on Letterboxd and Instagram. Or you can hit me up on at NotWellerPod on Twitter. You can email me directly at a year in horror at gmail.com. That's where I get most of my stuff from because I look at that every day. Also, if you enjoy this, please leave the show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It is even more important than my life it very self. Then you're all ready. You're ready to go. Let's do it. Here we go. As per usual, we kick off the show with the worst 10 films. Now this time around, as you know, I did a deep dive into the 50s. You may be asking, what were you thinking? There's way too many movies in the 50s. How are you going to do this? Well, I did it because I've hardly seen anything before from the 50s. And there were so many big hitting titles from that decade that I had no choice. I had no choice. I don't want to miss out on anything. Now I can guarantee you that there have been some terrible, terrible 50s films that I have yet to see. And maybe one day I'm going to get round to some of them, but I followed the rules that I initially set myself when we started the podcast and I've tried to follow them as best I can. But don't get me wrong, at some point I will be going through some of these lower ranked films because I want to hit some of them diamonds in the rough. But until then... Let's kick the 50s in the balls. 
First up is the 10 worst movie that I saw from the 50s, and it was called I Married a Monster from Outer Space, and it came out in 1958. Unfortunately, there is no chemistry or character development shown to us from the newlyweds before the, and inverted commas, alien incident. So, as in any film, why are we meant to care about these characters? Saying that, I do like that there's a female lead, but that is about it for this one. That's all it's got going for it. Moving on, we have Cult of the Cobra from 1955. And for this one, I don't mind the setup. But the lack of scares and real menace from the second act onwards, it just lets the film down. And yeah, this film has snakes. Following on from that, we have from 1959, The Monster of Piedras Blancas. Famous Monsters of Hollywood magazine names it. Shock Award winner. The Monster of Piedras Blancas. The Monster of Piedras Blancas. The world's most shocking monster stalks its unsuspecting prey, feasts its eyes on the next victim to writhe in its slimy arms. The screen's most nightmarish beast. A claw-fingered, scaly-skinned, half-human crustacean turning a lonely lighthouse village into a frenzied bedlam of blood-curdling horror. The acting in this one is particularly poor and the YouTube transfer that I watched had a terribly low-res render but it was a decent curio nonetheless. Uh, I'd read that the gore was pretty intense for the time and I must admit that keeping the creature away from the camera for the most part works wonders and when you do finally see it and at first you only see it in segments, just part of its body carrying a severed head, for instance. You know you're onto something cool, but as I say, unfortunately, it doesn't live up to any of those expectations that I had. It's really bland. I mean, this one is bland as hell, and it gets really talky, and that's the big issue here, I think. It's just too much chatter. 1959's Uncle Was a Vampire is up next. In the same year that he starred in The Mummy and The Man Who Could Cheat Death and The Hound of the Baskervilles, Christopher Lee starred in this, and again, in inverted commas, comedy and its nonsense. Uh, he is a vampire in this, of course. I mean, this one is up there with the scary movie franchise for one of the worst horror comedies that I've ever witnessed. A curio at best, a complete waste of everyone's time at its worst. At number six is Return of the Fly from 1959. And my advice here is just watch The Fly 2 instead. Sticking with 1959, of course, because all the films came out in 59, we have The Man and the Monster. And this one is a Mexican take on the Mephisto Waltz, 12 years before the Mephisto Waltz came out. I could only find this as part of the god-awful Commander USA late-night movie TV show thing that's on YouTube, so the upload was really low res, but of course, it was just about good enough to sit through, as that's what I did. Even with that lacklustre ending, I'm just happy to have crossed off another Mexican film from my list, to be honest with you. But alas, it's the dreaded werewolf movie. And as you may already be aware from previous episodes, werewolves just ain't my bag, daddy-o. What's that? 1959 again? Fair enough. 
What about Terror is Man? Now, this one is a cheap as chips mad scientist movie from Francis Madeira. Now, what can I recommend to you about this? I would recommend that maybe you just avoid it. That's all I can recommend. But the next one, the next one I watched on Amazon Prime. And I was so pleased when I saw it in their catalogue. It's called X the Unknown. And it's a hammer horror. But does hammer horror throw in their hat in the nuclear testing his bag ring add anything at all to the genre? Unfortunately, the poster overplays its hand and there is way too much waffle, as per usual, and scientific babble to have me engage with any of the characters. So that's a no then. At number two, this time from 1957, as a wild card, it's The Abominable Snowman. And this is another hammer horror. And yet again, it's just got way too many filler conversations. That seems to be a really big thing going on in the 50s. Pad your film out with boring scientific conversations. This one, it just has no sign of the monster until at least 50 minutes in. And when it did arrive, I just wish it hadn't. It's complete trash. And that was number two, so that means number one. We're here, the very worst horror that I saw from the 50s for this episode of A Year in Horror is called Daughter of Horror, a.k.a. Dementia. And this one is weird. It's almost a silent movie about a guilt-ridden woman bent on this compulsive need to kill. It's truly not to my taste. And I think the reason is, is this is a real arty sort of a24 in the 50s type feel and whilst i do love a24 stuff and also i do like some arty stuff from like the 20s and the 30s but not so much with this i think i'm allowed to say to this film that maybe it's me and it's not you but it's my chart and i can and i have and that is it the worst part of every episode that i have to deal with is now complete Let's just run down these again. So at number 10, we had I Married a Monster from Outer Space. At number 9 was Cult of the Cobra from 1955. At number 8 was The Monster of Piedras Blancas. At number 7 was Uncle Was a Vampire. Number 6, Return of the Fly. Number 5, The Man and the Monster. Number 4, that's right, Terror is Man. And number 3, X the Unknown. Number 2 was The Abominable Snowman. And number 1 was Daughter of Horror, a.k.a. Dementia. What a pile of old cack. No need to write any of that lot down. I don't know why I just went over them all again, but here we go. That's me. This is a list of films that nobody needs from the 1950s. Avoid, 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 avoid. Here we go. Now with the top 10 worst movies complete, we are going to hit it hard into the also-rans. But I watched so many movies this time around that the also-rans need to be popped into three different segments, of which this is the first. Also, none of these 19 movies are complete turd tonics, but I have to admit to you, I would never want to watch any of them again either. I rated them all at below average, so if you do agree with me with most things that I say, then I would avoid this lot, but... There is a caveat to that, in which I would have to be honest with you again. That is me being honest twice in one podcast. It's too much. 
but there is a ton of classics in here. And when I say classics, I mean huge, huge 50s big hitters. So, for whatever reason, they just didn't rub well with me. You may love them, but let us begin. So, first up in the also-rans is She-Devil from 1957. This one must have inspired the Wasp Woman that came out a couple of years later. There are some strong elements in both the experimental organic serums that turn these women into killers. And although I think that the Wasp Woman is a far stronger film, it is far superior. I'm still happy to have ticked this one off my list. Moving on, it came from outer space and that was released in 1953. It is slow, it is unengaging. The overall message was sound, but the execution very poor. Following this, we have The Mysterians. <laughs> yes, it's from 1957, and this one is a Japanese oddball alien invasion caper. They want three square miles of Earth and a few women to impregnate. That's all they want, but Earth has to say no, doesn't it? Oh, Earth. Fiend with Outer Face. That's up next. Brain, it's gone. That's not all. The entire spinal cord is missing. What? It's incredible. It's as if some mental vampire were at work. Does it come from another country or another world? This terrifying menace that G2 must destroy before it's too late. The image is fading, sir. There it goes again. Same trouble. How can they stop this invisible force whose only warning is a weird, blood-chilling sound? <laughs> only two people still alive can help this agent find the answers. The girl who could be a spy, and the scientist who could be the destroyer of the entire human race. We're facing a new form of life. Nobody understands. Yes, Fiend Without a Face. This one was recommended to me by Sister Hyde, who I speak with a little bit later about a different movie completely, uh, but I wasn't that keen on this one. I guess it is cheaper to have invisible monsters in your movie, but if that's the case, for the majority of this film, at least pick some quality actors that can deliver their lines without having each one sound like it's the first take. Saying that there is some bizarre creature work towards the end of this one that has to be seen to be believed. Now we head to 1958 for the Haunted Strangler, aka Grip of the Strangler. And it's got a pretty, I don't know, it's got a pretty tight setup and it's spoiled with a convoluted reveal quite early on in the film. What's that? 1959 this time? That means it's time for the Stranglers of Bombay. And this one is a hammer horror, I'm pretty sure. Uh, it's got an okay setup and it's got a few scattered decent set pieces. But again, this one just feels like a pretty lackluster attempt to over other an already established other. And it's still too overlong 80 minute running time. It is not director Terence Fisher's best by a long shot. Sticking with 59, we have The Tingler. I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions 
the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by The Tingler. And now may I show you a few scenes from The Tingler? That was The Tingler. Uh, a pretty cool intro piece from Mr. William Castle himself that ends in a huge amount of screaming and I had the TV up way too loud for it. Be aware, if you sit in town to watch that for the first time, it gets gnarly. But it does set this movie up quite nicely. The bedroom jump scare has aged really, really well. And Vincent Price still sounds like a pervert whenever he says, The Tingler. If I was in this film, as an actor, I'd be a little bit more upset than Ollie if my wife had just died. That is a bizarre scene. But after 40 minutes, the movie lost me completely. And I think that's because at that point the action started to take place. So what we have here really is a complete reversal of what usually goes on in these 50s horrors. Altogether now, 1958, that was the year that Corridors of Blood came out and that one is next. This one has Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee together in a pretty boring medical experiment gone wrong drama. It's got a few reckless deaths in it and a macabre plan being schemed as a subplot but it's just not enough. And now, it is time for Rodin. And at least this Japanese monster movie went for the slow build and a decent setup. Everything else, it was just like watching a really quite bad episode of Thunderbirds. So, next up in the also rands is Macabre from 1958, this one. And here is the letterbox synopsis for it. A doctor's daughter is kidnapped and buried alive and he is given just five hours to find and rescue her. Now, from that, I would usually be well in, especially when I know that William Castle directed it. But not so with this. Instead, I found it hard to stay awake and that is never a good sign. Moving on, we have How to Make a Monster and that was released in 1958. Hidden within each of us is a secret desire to destroy... Each of us would like to be able to become the other being, to know the master makeup artist's magic. How to make a monster. Broadway stellar performer Robert H. Harris brings to this theater the most terrifying of men, a man whose mind is distorted by hatred. I'll use the very monsters they mock to bring them to an end. This maniacal strength will linger in your arms and hands, and with it you'll destroy your real enemies exactly as I you. Who knew How to Make a Monster is a meta-monster movie from the 50s. In it, a Tom Savini type gets fired and takes revenge by hypnotising his actors, wearing his monstrous creations. And of course, I was totally game for this. It is a no-brainer in every sense of the word. But is it any good? Well, not particularly, no. The storytelling is quite flat and the monster design is rough at best, but again, like all of these, it's definitely worth watching once. There is good enough stuff in all these to give it a go. And following this, we have Quatermass 2 from 1957. And my take on this classic is that Invasion of the Body Snatchers that came out the following year followed mathematically a very similar path, 
but it was a far more successful movie in my eyes. The Black Sleep is up next, and this one opens with a bang, but it quickly settles into like this ethical talkie about the progression of medical science at the expense of others' life. That is a really common theme throughout these films as well. I would say that there is probably too many of them. Anyway, thanks to Arrow Video, next up is The Incredible Shrinking Man. This time it's from 1957. The trouble with this one is that the actual film itself is great. I just didn't find the effects charming or scary or clever. I found it pretty shoddy, if truth be told. Again, the acting is superb. The story is really good. I just wish this one was executed a bit better. And here we go. This is another classic that I rate at less than half marks. It is The Blob, Mr. Steve McQueen. He is playing a teenager, but in fact, the age of 17 is mentioned by the cops. He was actually 28 when he filmed this, and he looks at least 45. In my eyes, it is perfect casting. 1955 this time, and another classic in inverted commas, is The Amazing Colossal Man. And this one is much the same as the setup as The Incredible Shrinking Man. Just reverse the problem. It is a splash better than that one, but not much. And that's all I can say about it. Sticking with 1959, we have The Quatermass Experiment. Now, this is where I feel people might be turning off in their droves. People love Quatermass, and I don't get the love. I've seen this one twice now because I just thought I was getting it wrong, but it didn't get better for me. Another classic that I don't rate, and I guess not as many people will leave with this one, but it is The Hound of the Baskervilles. terrible howl on the night before Sir Charles died. There is more evil around us here than I have ever encountered before. The curse on the hound is on you! This, I think, is a two-pipe problem. So yes, The Hound of the Baskervilles. It may well have been popular on its release, but Peter Cushing does not convince me at all as Sherlock Holmes. I just wanted to knock that stupid, overlong pipe out of his mouth. And I guess Christopher Lee, who is also cast purely because this is a Hammer film, he does all right, but it's just another dodgy casting decision, if you ask me. These guys do not fit these characters, as far as I am concerned. And because of this... I think the 1939 adaptation, it outshines this one by a clear mile. And this for me is a rare misfire from Hammer and my two favourite actors pre-1970. Finally, in this first section of the also-rans, I bury the living. And in this one, a newly appointed cemetery chairman believes that merely by inserting a black plot marking pin into a wall sized map of the cemetery, he can cause the deaths of that plot's owner. And this, dear listeners, is where the films start to get really good. But unfortunately, this is where we leave the first part of the also rants. So, yeah, I bury the living. Would I recommend it? Yes. Where to now?
The star date is the whole of the 1950s AD. The whole decade has been spliced into one magical podcast moment. So welcome yourselves once again to the Walla Not Wella Mothership. And before we hit the horror top 10, I thought we should take a quick flight up here into the spook-free skies and reflect on 21 more movies that are fantastical in their nature or fictional in a more scientific way. But before we get to that, I would be a fool not to mention that 1959 saw the initial run of a TV show called The Twilight Zone. And whilst I did watch the whole thing in the mid-90s, I recently came back to this first season of it, and I have to admit, I was still totally engrossed. I would especially point you to the episodes number three and number four, and they were both first aired in October 1959. Uh, The first one was Mr. Denton on Doomsday, and that is the one with the alcoholic gunslinger. And then you've got one that I really loved, and it was called The 16mm Shrine, which stars Ida Lupino, and she plays a washed-up actress trying to make her way in Hollywood. Both are brilliant, but regardless of all that, up here amongst the stars, we do not talk TV shows, and we definitely do not chat about sci-fi horror hybrid TV series. Oh no, we don't. What we do here is we talk science fiction movies, we talk fantasy movies, and 101% we talk nonsense. For the 1950s in particular, we are talking about robots, romantic sex pests, aliens, talking rabbits, invisible rabbits, a cyclops, and a whole bunch of ridiculous ideas and plot hole laden techno babble. Please strap yourselves in as we visit Sci Fi Corner for the 1950s. Last month we visited 2004 and it was eternal sunshine of the spotless mind that made my top spot and it is worth mentioning that in the 2004 episode we were choosing between 14 movies but for the 1950s I caught a total of 21 science fiction and fantasy movies. Fortunately, as I look at this list, I would only bin off eight of the movies and the rest of them ranged from okay to incredible. So, yeah, let's do it. And of course, first, we have to take out the trash. We begin with Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. And I would say, apart from the films in the Scary Movie franchise, this is the absolute worst comedy that I have personally seen for years. It's real hard work. The Invisible Boy was up next, and with this one, just like in Forbidden Planet, that we will definitely mention later, by the way, this one stars Robbie the Robot, but it isn't a sequel, a prequel, or a remake, and it's not worth anyone's time either, for that matter. Not much better than that is a Disney favourite, Peter Pan. Now, regardless of the pre-title sequence that happens when you watch it these days, warning me of the upcoming racial slurs... I still wasn't prepared for it. It is absolutely wonderfully animated. This movie has dated poorly. And it left me wondering how drastically attitudes to other races, to women, to children and animals, they've just completely changed in the past 70 years. 
and thank goodness for that. Now, there is something remarkably standoffish about the next film, the 1956 edition of 1984. I watched this one on a scruffy upload to YouTube. It's a rather dry telling of the George Orwell classic. This is the motion picture version. There was also a TV version. Uh, both of them starred Donald Pleasance, and the other one is better than this one. The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. That is next in my pile. So that was a trailer for The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. And I have to say that I think this one missed such an opportunity. This was written by Dr. Seuss. And while there are definitely pointers into his wonderfully nutty imagination, this is a movie that is at points painful from the off. There are so many flat shots of all these wonderful sets around. It makes the film far more chitty chitty bang bang and way less green eggs and ham. I was hoping all the time for just some surreal nonsense and it didn't come. Following this is Ulysses. And if it wasn't for the Cyclops in the cave, those scenes, yep, you know them, then this would be fit probably only for the bin. It's pretty boring. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea follows. This one features over two hours of Captain Nemo, which was just over two hours too much for me. And finally, we are coming to the end of the below average films. It is Disney's turn once again with Cinderella. And this one just contains so much filler. As you no doubt already know, this one is a sort of cutesy movie about a dog, a cat and some mice and some birds. So, been that lot, but now here we are. Good times ahead. Up next is Earth versus the Flying Saucers. saucers have invaded our planet. Washington, London, Paris, Moscow are key targets. The whole world is under attack. Can it survive? Sitting neatly at number 13 in the sci-fi corner in my little chart that I've made is the surprisingly not rubbish Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Yeah, again, this one is a little bit flat in both visuals and dialogue. And yet there is way, 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 way too much chatter and not enough spaceships and aliens with their heads which are actually shaped like circumcised bell ends. Add to this a poorly written heroine, 
add to this a poorly written heroine which would have taken 15 minutes to sort out in a prompt rewrite, maybe on that day. And what you're left with is just this fantastical premise that isn't realised on the screen. But almost every UFO shot in this thing is stunning. And for that alone, it is well worth the watch. Next up is When Worlds Collide, which is a really early example of the disaster movie, and bloody great it is too. But knowing now how the Western world handled the toilet paper shortage in 2020, it really does show how stupid it is to think that humans are just going to be at ease with not being chosen for their one-off chance to escape from a dying planet. This film is utter nonsense. In my notes here, I've written cripes. The more I look at that word, maybe it doesn't exist. Anyway, speaking of warnings from space, next up is Warning from Space. Arrow Video released this alien invasion movie recently and I had to pick up a copy because I love the front cover. Now, for me, this is best known for where the star-shaped aliens in 2021's The Suicide Squad, they got their look from this one. I can't remember a lot about the film now, except it all looked cheap as chips and it was good fun. Keeping things at the just above average spot, we have Yugetsu. Now, Mark Canali was furious when I put this one so low, and he's probably not the only one. This is a massively popular Japanese tale of greed and ghostly fantastical things going on that has an awesomely eerie sound palette behind it. I didn't hate it. At number nine, would you believe we have Pandora and the Flying Dutchman? Now, I've only ever seen Ava Gardner in The Sentinel before this, so it was actually great to watch her in the most popular period of her Hollywood career, playing a woman that knows exactly what she wants, but actually has no idea what she needed. Ah, it's a fantasy, but it is a delightful fantasy. And 1959's On the Beach, this is an atomic bomb depresso machine, again starring Ava Gardner. She's with Gregory Peck this time, and by now, yeah, I'm getting used to her on screen. She's pretty good. Well done, the 50s. But even better than that, even better than Ava Gardner, is The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Now, this one showcases some of that mad good Ray Harryhausen special effects work, but doesn't do a lot else for me. But honestly, that's enough. Alice in Wonderland follows on from that and this again is from the Walt Disney Company and it still holds some animated surrealist imagery which I really connected with. In places this one is nutty as a bag of spanners and to this day it still really works for me. At number five, we're getting there, we're getting there, more Disney of course, this time it is Sleeping Beauty. Now the reason why this one is so high is that the second act is really dark and freaky. I've got to thank my daughter also at this point for letting me use her Disney Plus account. Thank you very much. There's a few bangers on there. At number four is 1984. And whilst I do still prefer that version that came out in 1984, this one from 1954 stars Peter Cushing and Donald Pleasance. Uh, and of course, it's bloody great. But enough. Enough already with this Orwellian future. At number three, we've got some nonsense, and it's called Harvey, and it stars James Stewart. This is a really interesting film, and I think it's quite a forward-thinking take on mental illness and alcoholism, well, as far as I can see it anyway. This came out in the 50s. I would totally recommend this one to you. I loved it. 
at number two, Forbidden Planet. Now, I bought this Blu-ray on Mark Kermodes. Kermodes? Kermodes. Kermodes? Don't know. Uh, but his recommendation anyway, and thank goodness I did. I don't use this word much, but I'm going to say it now. I was absolutely enthralled watching it. Uh, it totally worked. It feels retro-futuristic. It's a science fiction thrill ride. And the soundtrack by Louie and Baby or Beebe or Beeb, I don't know. But Louie and Beeb Baron, I would take it they're brothers. They may be sisters. They may be brother and sister. I don't know. But what I do know is that whilst being a bit much for the whole film's running time, it is inventive and it's groundbreaking. It's a brilliant soundtrack. I love it. Okay, my number one pick. The Day the Earth Stood Still. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Drew Pearson. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. The arrival of a space ship in Washington. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. So that was the trailer for the day the Earth stood still at my word. The synopsis of this one reads... And I quote, An alien and a robot land on Earth after World War II and they tell mankind to be peaceful or face destruction. And that letterbox synopsis, that was enough to draw me in. And of course, I had heard of it before and I knew that at some point I will be watching it for the 50s review. But I just had no idea what a great film this would be. The story simply flies along. You're not sure what's going on the whole time. It is really tight and it's really well directed by Robert Wise. It was a complete surprise for me. So my number one pick is The Day the Earth Stood Still. And there you have it. The best science fiction and fantasy films from the 1950s. What a journey. But enough. I reckon that we should hit the top ten horror films now. So I'm going to depart from this here craft... That was me departing. Let's get away from the stars. Let's get back into the feel of horror. The gore, the terror, the evil, the totally relentless torture. I can't wait. He's a robot. Without you, what could he do? There's no limit to what he could do. He could destroy the Earth. Goodlad's book called Goth Undead Subculture, Christopher Lee is quoted as saying that at the point of accepting his 1958 role as the titular Dracula, he had not seen any other performances on the screen for the devilish deviant. 
On acceptance, he quickly devoured the book and with a quick costume alteration at his behest, he became the iconic silhouette that I will forever know as Dracula. Although, as mentioned in the chat later with Paul Chanter, Gary Oldman does come in very close with his incredible depiction in the early 90s. And of course, I'd get fired from my job if I didn't mention Bela Lugosi, so consider him mentioned. Yeah! As said, this is the 1958 Hammer Horror. This is Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. This is Dracula. This is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise. try and understand. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Castle Dracula is summoned here in Klausenberg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. This is the doctor who dares to challenge the vampire Dracula. This is the anguished man who fears for the lives of his beloved, the girl who is his sister, and the one that is his wife. Dracula, the bedeviled master of all that is evil. So what does Letterbox tell us? Okay, after Jonathan Harker attacks Dracula at his castle, I presume what they mean by that, it's Dracula's castle. It's not Jonathan Harker's castle. It's not very clear. The vampire travels to a nearby city where he preys on the family of Harker's fiance. The only one who may be able to protect them is Dr. Van Helsing, Harker's friend and fellow student of vampires. He is determined to destroy Dracula, whatever the cost. Yeah, so, before we head over to the ruddy, fabulous chat, if I say so myself, with Paul Chanter, he is the guitar wizard with UK Thrash's Acid Rain, by the way. I, I think I've got to mention that. I do want to go into detail one day with my three favourite actors from the 20th century. We've got Vincent Price. Now, I've seen 22 of his movies so far. We've got Peter Cushing, who I've now seen 26 of his movies. And Christopher Lee. I'm up to 42 viewings of him in different roles up to now, up to the recording of this. Now, the thing is, and it has been mentioned to me, why don't I do an episode on one of them? And I would really love to. I just, right now, I don't think... I know enough about any of them to do a deep dive. And I will do it one day. I'd really love to. 
I guess at the moment it's Christopher Lee that I'm the closest with. I'm beginning to find out a little bit about his character, uh, his personal character that is, thanks to the research I did for the Wicker Man double episode with Mark Canali a few months ago. And I guess also having seen a decent portion of his movies now and watched all the extras, etc. I, I simply love it when he appears on the screen. He feels like a mate. Does that feel weird to say? He just feels like whenever I see him, he feels like a mate that I can just cheer on. And yeah, honestly, it is something that I do want to do. I would love to do it. Maybe I will just invite some biographers on the show and I can just bombard them with 100 questions. Regardless... That's going to come up one day, but right now, myself and Paul Chanter, we are going to go deep on our love for Lee and Cushing. And we're doing it all on this here chat, all about Terence Fisher's Dracula. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> that's, the best, that's the best intro ever. <laughs> oh, my God. Right. Hello. Hi. We haven't just been talking for half an hour about various things. No, and then you just suddenly... Right, okay. Yeah, enough of this. We're off. Right. First of all, is this Dracula to you, or is it horror of Dracula? Oh, it's Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm British. <laughs> too, too bloody right. <laughs> <laughs> I won't get it confused with the, you know, the Universal Dracula. That's the only reason they put Horror of Dracula in there. I find those sort of things, before we even go into it, I find those sort of things absolutely mind-boggling how stupid production companies and studios think Americans are. I don't, I don't understand that at all. The best one I ever heard was, um, you know, The Madness of King George III? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just called The Madness of King George, and... They, no, in the States, they called it The Madness of King George, but over here it was called Madness of King George III. They changed it to just The Madness of King George in the States because they were, <laughs> too many people were saying, but I haven't seen the first two. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, wa- I wondered like, where that was going. Oh, yeah, that's just like, because it was like, you know, George three, and they're like, yeah, but I haven't seen parts one and two. <laughs> <laughs> and also Harry Potter being the Sorcerer's Stone in the States and not the Philosopher's Stone. Because <laughs> yes. I don't know. They just don't understand what a philosopher is, I guess, in the States. <laughs> I, I, I mean, good. Oh, well, I'm glad. I'm glad you've fallen on the side of just Dracula. I can handle that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, definitely. All right. So this was the 65th Hammer film. Like 65 already in. I did the count in today. That's crazy. Yeah. That's um that's good going, and I feel like at this point also they're hitting for for genre fans. They're really hitting their sort of stride. Do you feel the same way? I just want to talk about Hammer in general for a bit. So do you feel the same? Yeah, I mean they they clearly, I mean they they've done a lot of different stuff. Hammer as a as a studio done a lot of different things. I think, but I think especially with this and Curse of Frankenstein, I think that's when they were really. To me, at least, anyway, that's when it's like they kind of hit their stride. Because for me, I can only speak for me, is that when I think of Hammer Horror, I think of Peter Cushion and Christopher Lee. Pretty much. You know, it's like, it's kind of insane how influential Hammer were 
I don't think the studio gets an, as much credit as it should. I think I know it gets a lot of recognition and and credit for for what it's done with for horror films in in general and uh, genre films, but I don't think it gets as much as it should because it, it did kind of those characters would have just kind of disappeared. I think. I mean, the reason they carried on is because I think Universal lost the option on a lot of those characters. That's why you started to see more of the Frankenstein things coming into Hammer and why they started doing like Curse of the Werewolf and stuff because they all those things were bought up by Hammer Horror, bought up the distribution rights to stuff like that. So that's why Frankenstein was allowed to have a flat head in one of the Hammer f films because that that's owned by Universal. So I think a lot of those characters might have kind of just drifted away and become... Well, that's just a really old film. I remember growing up, I knew these characters before, and my only the only time that I actually got to see them was very late at night with the TV turned right down. There would be these, like, um, they would put two films in a row or three films in a row until really early hours in the morning, and it was all the Hammer versions. I, I, yep. I and, I, you know, the I vomit or drink your blood and all this stuff. I didn't know what that was. I had no idea because yeah. this wasn't what yeah. I was watching. Um, no. So, yeah, I think that's got a lot to do with it. If you're from England, if you were raised in England, then, yeah, we've definitely, we. you're quite right. I see Hammer as where this comes from. Initially, anyway, Definitely. I had to later learn what Universal monsters were. Yeah, I mean, what, the reason I was laughing when you when you kind of said about them being under double bill, that's like when I was a kid, it's like so Hammer films, Hammer horror films were kind of a, the gateway drug for me um, because I, I had nothing to do with horror films when I was a kid. I was Horror was just not for me at all because I was too easily shit scared by stuff. Yeah. So just no, didn't want anything to do with any horror films. I was interested in it in a kind of like, what is that? Uh, it's too scary. I don't want anything to do with it. Fair. But I was staying. There was one night I stayed with my brother around, around one of his friend's place. And his parents had gone out. So there was me, my brother and his mate. And we were up what I considered to be really late. It was probably like 11 o'clock. Um, and there was a double bill of Curse of Frankenstein and Dracula. And I really didn't want to watch it because it was Frankenstein and Dracula. But, but I couldn't say anything because my older brother and his older mate wanted to watch it. But what they did, they took the piss out of it all the way through. They took the piss out of the, the blood, the effects, the acting, the dialogue. They took the piss out of everything to the point that I started finding it funny. And I just watched those films and I was absolutely fine. And after that, I, I, you know, I just started watching. Oh, like Hammer Horror. Film. Right, okay, I can watch them. I know I can watch them. And then I kind of built it up and built up my tolerance and moved on to harder things you know but they they were the hammer was like that's that's the way in definitely you know i mean like some of them would probably freak out you know little kids now i'm not saying little kids should be watching hammer horror films but you know they're definitely uh, a way in to you're not going to sit somebody down and make them watch the exorcist straight away you know you, <laughs> a couple of <laughs> you weeks i <might> do <laughs> yeah well, I think some of them have kept their 15 ratings. Yeah. And there is some really nasty stuff in some of them, uh, including this one. Like, still today, yeah. there, are, there are nasty bits, and there are bits that, yeah, fair enough, it freaked audiences out at the time. It's hard to say that when I watched, for instance, A Devil Rides Out, I mm. can see how someone will watch that and just think, oh, that's laughable, look at them effects, you know. Yeah. But to me... 
as I say, with the TV turned down, like so my parents wouldn't storm in or whatever. I'm just like, <laughs> oh my god, it's the yeah. devil. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. So exciting! I was really the truly excited. The goat of Mendes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then, of course, being into heavy metal, like you, you find all these lyrics that are about yeah. them. And every now and again, someone cover art will be a painting of the goat of Mendes or whatever. And you're like, wow, yeah. I've seen that. I know what that's about. And again, yeah. just so exciting for me growing up. So, yeah, I, I, I love it. Um, have you got any particular favourites apart from Dracula that uh, Hammer have put out? It's For me, it's it's Dracula and The Curse of Frankenstein, definitely. They're, those are the two that are straight up there. Curse of the Werewolf comes in somewhere, but it's a bit of, just because it's a werewolf film, but it's a bit of a, and Oliver Reed, but it's just a bit of a letdown because you want a bit more werewolf action in it. Um, the Gorgon. Hello. It's pretty cool too. Yeah, I, I, I did a I did a full-on sesh of a load of Hammer stuff a couple of years ago. And uh, one I couldn't find, which I have since found but not watched, was um, Plague of Zombies. I wanted to watch that one just because it's set set in Cornwall, I think. That's um, a fucking so gnarly film as well, that one. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, I want to I wanna get around to that one. But, yeah, it's pretty much Curse of Frankenstein and, and, and Dracula because, you know, you got, that's, that's two of the big... Heavy hitters, Frankenstein and Dracula. And and they're both Peter Cushion and Christopher Lee, you know. All right. Which, I just can't get enough of those two. There's tons from the, the Dracula side of thing that I haven't seen. I wrote them down. Like I've just was going through them today. I haven't seen The Vampire Lovers, haven't seen Brides of Dracula, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, Dracula AD yeah. seventy two, and The Blood of Dracula. I've not seen them. Like I watched I watched all of those when I when I when I did it a couple of years ago. I basically I was laid up with a with a a kid, a wedged kidney stone. Jesus Christ. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so to try and take my mind off that, I just started watching all uh, like Hammer stuff, and I watched all the all the uh, all the Christopher Lee Dracula things, and they do get questionable quality. Oh, they, do they? Yeah, yeah. Because well, the thing is, Christopher Lee. I mean, we'll get onto it later, but Christopher Lee was just so uh, enamoured by the the role of dracula that um he there's there's some awesome if you can find them there's some awesome screenshots i can't remember where i saw them now but screenshots of his script for one of the dracula films i can't remember which one it was and he's written he's so committed to it that he was questioning the dialogue in it and sometimes he'd change it and use dialogue from bram stoker's dracula and he and there's there's a screenshot of a script and next to it he's written in thick like a like a sharpie, like permanent marker. It just says no, <laughs> underlined about four it. times, you know? and you can just imagine it. No, <laughs> and as a director, I will go fair, fair point, fair enough. Yeah, you know, when you're dealing with a guy who's like, what was he, six foot five or something, and he's and he's and he sounds like that, and he's playing and he's dressed up as Dracula, and he comes up to you and goes, I really don't like this dialogue. You're like, okay, I'm not going to do. It. Okay, you do whatever, Chris. It's fine. <laughs> you know? Before we move on from just Hammer in general, uh, the new Hammer stuff, did that interest mm. you at all? Were you excited by that? Uh, I remember going against the grain a little bit and I loved uh, Let Me In, that that remake of the uh, yeah. Let the Right One In. And also The Lodge recently, I loved that. Although, again, people were like on the fence about it. Yeah. What do you think about this new Hammer stuff? I think um, oh, there's, a, there's another one that has Christopher Lee in it. 
he lives in a flat above somebody. I can't remember. What oh it's yeah, a remake of a, a French one about uh, um, a guy that looks after the flats. Or yeah, the yeah, I can't. Yeah, oh. it's Jeff. Is it Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Hilary Swank? I think Hilary Swank for sure. Yeah, that's the one. I can't remember what it's called. I'll I'll edit me yeah. saying it rather funnily here. The film is titled The Resident. There we go. That's what it was called. <laughs> um, yeah, what I liked about that, the whole new Hammer stuff, was just the fact that Hammer was back as an entity. I just liked that. Um, I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's because it's a British thing, but I was like, cool, Hammer's back. But it's not like they've taken, you know, they're not Marvel. They haven't taken over the world or anything, but it's just, no, that name, you can see it pop up at the beginning of a film, a Hammer production, and you're like, cool and as far as i remember they had quite a cool logo as well yeah oh all like old old school film posters in it and stuff definitely yeah it's something that warms me yeah I, yeah yeah i just like i just like the idea of it it's like oh they're back cool <laughs> now get back to dracula for goodness sake <laughs> yeah. um right okay so in general again i'm not I'm not going to approach this film just yet in general favorite vampire movies does this dracula still hold its ground with what's come since to you i i think it i think it does personally because it seems to be uh you know in terms of an old school dracula film i think this is very much what you would be after it it has all the ingredients that you would if somebody was to make it's one of those things like if you said to somebody right what does dracula look like they would describe christopher lee where does Dracula live? They would describe the sets from yeah. the 58 Dracula. So Bela Lugosi, you know, that, that, that version of Dracula might have been a slightly more faithful version to Bram Stoker's novel. But the Christopher Lee, you know, the, the Hammer horror version kind of brought the sexiness into it that is now... It's it's just inextricably linked with vampires now. Vampires are sexy. That's it. Um, and and I think this was the film that did that. I mean, you have Bela Lugosi with his hand and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But it wasn't pure. There, there wasn't much cleavage in the Lugosi one as there is in, like, increasing amounts of cleavage. As you go through the, the, the Dracula films, you'll, you'll notice that more blood, more boobs. But I think that's that's that air of vampires being sexy has definitely stayed and got a bit more. You know, it's not as subtle. Not that it was that subtle back then, but it's definitely not subtle. But I think that's kind of st stuck around. But in terms of like uh, vampire films, for me, this one definitely. If you want an old school vampire like Dracula story, it's not the Dracula story. It's not the most faithful version of the book kind of thing. All right. But there aren't many vampire films that I kind of really rate. I mean, Bram Stoker's Dracula, I, there's something about that film that I really like. Same. I think Gary Oldman. I think it basically comes down to Gary Oldman. And Anthony Hopkins just having a fucking whale of a time. He's just loving it. I don't think he even really cares what he's doing. He's just loving it. So, yeah, there's something about that, even though I don't think it's that great a film. I do. There's something I really do like about it. But I prefer my vampires to be a bit more animal than interview the vampire or twilight you know um so for me it's 30 days of night it's let the right one in 
let me in as well i think is is completely i i i will argue with anyone about the merits of let me in and whether it should have been made or not because i've read the book i've seen both films they all do things that the others don't so there are bits in let me in from the book that weren't in let the right one in you know so i like both of them so yeah 30 days a night is 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 my kind of vampire film and what we do in the shadows is a very good vampire film as well <laughs> come on you're also clearly forgetting drake we spoke about him last time blade trinity no, not blade trinity at all no <laughs> No, um, no, it was on my list, Blade, but it's kind of like that's a questionable one because it's a superhero film. But no, it's got vampires in it, so yeah, it's definitely a vampire film. But yeah, Blade is 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 you know totally on the list as well. But it's a, it's a pretty short list in terms of vampire films. I'm probably missing some that you know when we finish talking, I go, oh fuck yes, that's an awesome film. But um, you know, I can think of a lot of bad ones faster than I can think of really good ones. You know, which is sad, really. Well, you get burnt out. Like when, like um, for instance, with zombies, Walking Dead, vampires, True Blood. You know, when it gets yeah. to that level where you got a huge successful telly show as well, uh, and yeah. movie franchises, you do get burned out if you're like a hardened horror fan, and it becomes all of a sudden it's not for you anymore. Like there is a little bit gatekeepery feel that I get sometimes. I'm happy to admit that. Like, I, I, yeah, I still think it's a good good thing that horror is doing these things but you can only water things down so much i think for me it's how are you, how are you doing this in a new in a new way how are you doing this that isn't just retreading shit i've already seen yeah. you know so that's why like elements of 30 days a night that i liked was that they were very animalistic they they had their own language um they were violent as fuck this whole thing of turning up like once a year or whatever it is, and and I just thought that's that's an awesome angle. I haven't seen anything like that. Let the right one in. The reason I like let the right one in or let me in, whichever, both, whatever. I think it's really sweet. I think it's a really, I think it's a lovely story that has horrific elements in it, but it's at its heart, it's a story about you know two people connecting, and I think it's a really really. I mean, we've gone off on a tangent, but I think it's a really nice story. So it's kind of, what are you doing with a vampire thing that's that's new? You know, that isn't like, oh, he's he's cursed and it, and he's miserable, but he has to go out and do this. I don't want to do it. I don't like to kill things, but I have to. Oh, he's so attractive, though, isn't he? You know, oh, fuck off. You know, that's like, come on, seriously, just just, just what, what are you going to do that's new with it? You know, and I'm not saying I have any idea of what you could do that's new. I mean, I got an idea for a vampire thing that I haven't that I had years ago, never written, but I wouldn't say it was a new idea. But that's the thing. What can you do with these things? You know, vampires, werewolves, zombies. What can you do that's fresh? You know, I quite liked Only Lovers Left Alive. I didn't expect to like it, and I put it off for years, and then I watched it, and I found myself just drawn in by those characters yeah. um it was such a long film such a slow burn but it was a nice new approach so i really do get what you're saying there like as long as there's something different i'm not saying that people have to you know um change the world or anything but it's just i don't know like do a haunted house thing but it's not in a castle change it up do it sci-fi okay you end up with alien 
you know yeah. just 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 do that just take take that thing twist it and see what happens you know you might you might find gold there but i think it's a bit too easy for people to fall back on well you know people love twilight so they want to see a tortured soul oh, he hates being a vampire but he but he has to be a vampire but he's so attractive at the same time it's like no that's what i loved about 30 days a night they're not attractive they're fucking ugly and all they want to do is eat you <laughs> even the kids as well and they have to kill the and kids it was as well. genuinely scary film as well when you first watch that and you don't know where it's going it's horrible yeah yeah, yeah. great yeah okay 1958 they did do something new for a start it's in color um mm. now the the opening where you get the blood and you see blood yeah. and it's bright red i i read how audiences reacted to that uh where they might have been chin strokey before but when they saw that they sat their ass down and then all right okay deliver yeah. it must have been something special i th i think that is a definite um the splash of Kensington Gore, you know that that is. Um, sorry, I can't stop doing that voice. I've been watching Jurassic Park. I, I love what it. What am I supposed to do? Don't ever stop. <laughs> That's like, um, you know, whose blood is it? Where has it come from? No one gives a shit. What that is is Hammer just put. That's them putting their. That's them setting up their stall, you know. That's like this is what we're going to be doing. There's going to be blood in this, and you can, and it's going to be bright fucking red, and you're going to see it everywhere as much as we possibly can without getting get cut, you yeah. know. And I think that's really cool. There's there's no there's no denying, you know, there's no question about what kind of film you're going to watch when it just says Dracula on a coffin that then has blood dripped on it from somewhere. It's, where's it dripping from you know it's like it doesn't matter it just fucking looks cool and it's in color you know and with that score as well the titles in bright red and that score it's one of those scores that actually says the title of the film do you know what i mean like it goes dracula you know like yes. dun, 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 superman or fucking star wars it's fucking star wars <laughs> you know that kind of thing it says says the title of the film in it you know that's class. That's class. It's so cheesy, and it's such a cheesy B movie genre kind of thing to do. It's awesome, and I think it probably started there. But that whole title sequence, the music, the statue—Are you all right? I've, I've never heard that before, but it's so right. I'm trying to think of other films that do it now. I'm trying That's to think great. of one for Jaws, obviously, but I can't. Um, <laughs> sorry, go on. Sorry. Apart from it's a fishy, it's a fishy, but that doesn't work. Don't um, work. That was good. No. Nah. But yeah, just that. So the the red, the red blood, the red titles, the the um, the music, the the statue. It's just there's you are so set up for the film that's coming. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And the fact that it is in color. His you know Christopher Lee's contacts, bright red contacts, and he's blood on his teeth and blood on his lips, and when they stake him, blood. You know, it's like they're loving it. They're loving the fact that we can stick this in it and it would just look fucking amazing. I, they, I agree. they must have felt then how James Cameron felt when he was making Avatar, you know, like this is gonna be fucking unreal. This really <laughs> works. What the hell? Right, I I've been for some reason, I instead of splitting up the fifties a little bit, I just did the whole of the fifties. So I've this I've watched hundred and one films in total to sort of get my list. That's a lot. And a lot of it is in black and white. 
and there's only yeah. a few that were in colour. And this yeah. was such a refreshing thing just to see. What an yeah. opening. And I was just thinking to myself, well, that imagine what it was like for people then. You know, exactly the same. Yeah. Like, thank goodness. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about it back then in terms of, you know, context, like historical context kind of thing. When that title sequence would have come out in 1958, nobody would have seen anything like that. That would have been... That that would have <laughs> blown people away, you know, like the bright red blood, and that's why people said, you know, I think reviews at the time said this is one of the. Uh, they said it was. Um, they didn't use gory. I can't remember what it was. They used they used the word saying it was excessively gory, and the sexual content was just. They they were just blown away by this was basically just gory yes. filth, and it's like, come on, seriously. <laughs> Say that now, but Hammer were definitely putting um, both feet forward, you know, like this is where we're going to go from now on. And I yes. can't wait to see like where it does develop. I know you said the film's like sort of gradually uh, getting a little bit worse, but I'm still excited it, it, about it, it getting it there. It definitely gets more titty. There's, 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 it's there's, so English. There's a, More there's, 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 there's a lot of flesh. It gets very titty. Um, there's a lot of flesh. And I think it's because you're heading through the 60s and into the 70s, basically. Right. And they started to aim for the kids. So what do the kids want to see? Oh, it's all, you know, um, free love and all that. So we've got Christopher Lee wandering around, being chased by, Chris, by Peter Cushing. Uh, with loads of hippie people shagging uh, what's going on you know that's when it starts to lose it then and and i think there's there's one film i can't remember which one it is um it's one of the one of the follow-up films where christopher lee has no dialogue at all because he thought the script was so fucking awful he refused to speak he's only on screen for nine minutes in this one seven is it seven yeah oh yeah. mate that's yeah mad. but but do you know what's really cool about that he's only he's only on screen for seven minutes and I only I only found this out today, but it cracks me up. He has sixteen lines of dialogue. Right. He's on screen for seven minutes. Do you know how much he got paid to do Dra to do Dracula? Seven hundred and fifty quid. Oh come on, come on. He got on. seven. The film cost eighty grand. <laughs> what? Seriously? Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, Dracula cost eighty grand to make. But it's so beautiful. It is so good looking. I mean, the next bit we're going to hit here is set design and costume. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Oh, my word. Like, just the costumes alone, you would think. You, these are multi-thousand-pound costumes. They're so good and suave. And I, I don't know. I've not seen anything quite like it in those 50s films that I've been watching. No. How dapper no. these people look. Like, proper cool. Definitely. And this is what I said earlier on about if if you say to somebody what does Dracula look like they will describe this film he has a long cape you know he hasn't got the the big collar that's the Bella Lugosi thing I think I'm not sure but what you know the, the in terms of the costume and set design I think what this film did was sort of solidify kind of into popular culture I guess what the entire Dracula mythos should look like you know, this is guess, what Dracula, yeah. you know, if you're doing the, it's the cape, the castle, the fangs, it's all there, you know, because I don't think there had been a vampire film with fangs like that before. 
because um, he didn't have them in the Ghosties one. And uh, I mean, Nosferatu, he had the kind of two things at the front, I guess. You know, and, and, and like with the set design and stuff, like for those listening, I have a background shot of Christopher Lee stood at the top of the stairs, which is um, that shot is awesome. I love that's my favorite shot in the film. But that staircase, if you look at that film really carefully, those stairs pop up everywhere. They repurpose that, that staircase all over <laughs> okay. the shop. But you wouldn't know it just watching the film. If you're sad and you know sad facts like I do, that that staircase pops up a lot. They they swing it around and change it about, cover it in moss, take it outside, take it inside. Brilliant. It's all over the place. But that's really that's why the film, you know, didn't cost a ton because they knew what you you're working with really experienced sort of stage hands and carpenters and stuff at, at that point. That's why film. Uh, People would come over here to make films because the, the 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 construction crew and the technical crews in the UK were some of the best in the world. That's why all the Star Wars films are made over it. That's why all the James Bond films are made over. So it's definitely got its own style, design-wise, that is then carried through. In especially in the Dracula films, it's kind of carried through into into those to have the same. Obviously, it's some continuity between it, but I think. I think what they did was really like highly influential in terms of okay what kind of design thing are we going for here and I think that kind of carried on into other filmmakers versions of the same stuff and and different kind of gothic setting stuff you know those those old universal films I that's one of the things I love about James Wells Frankenstein is the sets in that I just you have these massive staircases that are absolutely ridiculous you know you would never have a staircase like that they're sort of realistically they would be chiseled out of rock and they're wonky and they're far too long and they spin but they look amazing it's all about how does it look you know and I think I think what they did with this version of Dracula was I mean there's two ways of looking at it I think the writer said that um he wanted to make a, a, a more grounded version of Dracula, which is a weird thing because that's a thing that's said nowadays about I wanted to do, you know, I want to do a more grounded take on Batman or something, you know. It's, but he wanted to do a, a more grounded take on Dracula because that's why he threw out all the turning into a bat, turning into a wolf, turning into fog. All that's gone. And he said it's because he wanted to make it more grounded. But I think a lot of that went because we can't fucking afford to do any of that stuff. And we don't know how we do it anyway. You know, so I think what they did with what they had, they it's almost like they didn't know what they they didn't know what they were doing. But they were doing huge things with not very much. And and it's kind of it's lasted. I mean, it just it still looks great. They had like those two um, star actors here, like hardly hindered them i mean like that that scene that you've got behind you where he's at the top of the stairs in my head he glides down those stairs and yet when i rewatched mm. it today oh no he does walk but that's yeah. imagery that's like burned into my head oh no he just glides down yeah like there's yeah. movie magic but it isn't he's just walking but so upright and so regal and you know oh, that's the thing it. that apparently there was a screening of horror of Dracula in Times Square and Christopher Lee was there and when he appeared at the top of the stairs like that uh, the audience laughed because they were like oh look it's Dracula but then when he walked down the stairs and he said I am Dracula and I welcome you to my house they just shut the fuck up 
because it was like, whoa, this guy is like, he's erudite. He's, uh, you know, he's well-spoken. He's, he isn't a monster. This is not what we were expecting. And it just threw them all for a loop, you know. And I think that's what, when you've got somebody like Christopher Lee, who has that gravitas, you know, and he he knew his shit as well. I mean, he's I mean, this is a guy who read Lord of the Rings every every once every year. So when he played Saruman, he was telling Peter Jackson, "No, he wouldn't do that." And you're like, oh, "Okay," <laughs> you know. So when he played Dracula, he read the book inside out and was like, "I'm playing." I think he said he went for the loneliness of evil was the thing that he was going for. That like Dracula has been there for so fucking long, and he's just, I just, I just. I've had enough of this really. And that's the kind of way he was playing it was that it's just, it's really shit having to live forever. <laughs> yeah. Know? It is. Even when he's doing that sort of like uh, idle chit chat, which obviously with not many lines doesn't last very long. There is that no. like, what are you thinking behind your eyes? What I know what's coming out of your mouth, but what are you actually thinking here? What are you going to be doing? Oh, when he's saying, yeah, I, I may be away on business until the early hours of tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, okay, all right, mate. Um, that's not weird at all. And then he locks him in his room. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck? Right. But yeah, it's just, I think I think he's, I mean, personally, I could just listen to Christopher Lee speak all day because I think he's just got an amazing voice. But um, what he brought to that, whether he liked it or not, he sort of carried that role around his neck for the rest of his life. What was cool was that he was kind of a little bit reinvented later in life with like Count Dooku in Star Wars and and Saruman, you know. So for a lot of people, he is he is Saruman. That's it. They wouldn't know him as Dracula. It's just oh, that's that's Saruman. Cool, that's fine. Saruman's fucking awesome as yep. well. Yeah, not bad. You know? I'm trying not to shout. You have elected the way of pain. I'm really trying to keep it in. <laughs> um, but. Just so he's got that character. That character is just Christopher Lee, you know. And so, like I said, I said a couple of times, people think of Dracula, they think of Christopher Lee. And you know, you, as soon as you think of for me, as soon as I think of Christopher Lee, I think of Peter Cushion, because those two, uh, you know, they're like Morgan Wise. You know, those two. Imagine them on a Saturday evening light entertainment show. I don't think I'll be up for that. Did you never see when Peter Cushion was on Morecambe and Wise? No. Oh, he, I think he did a sketch with them, and then he'd turn up every so often, like for like a decade later, just turning up every so often saying he hadn't been paid for it and just, just ask them are they going to pay him yet. But, um, yeah, anyway, that's a, besides the point. Uh, well, that's a, now a YouTube hit when I go to edit this. Yeah, definitely, like, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, right, you mentioned him. Let's talk about Peter Cushing. Obviously, best role, Star Wars. We all know that. But if we... If we <laughs> what? If you if, if we're sticking with this film, um, yes. which we have to, okay. So best dressed, I would say. I am so envious of his get up. Um, I, I don't know. I think if you want best dressed, Peter Cushion. I think Curse of Frankenstein. I think he's he's nailing it there. He looks very fucking swish in the Curse of Frankenstein. He does. Um, okay, all right. His entrance, not as like. Wow, as Dracula, but still pretty, pretty great. I love him really entering the bar as well. Mm. Um, uh, my 
my goodness, his conversation in, instantly. He know everyone knows what he's there for, but no one yeah, wants to talk yeah. about it. Um, Van Helsing as a character later on. If we mention Van Helsing now, people were just going to think of that movie, <sighs> which is you know, which is a shame. Yes. What do, what do you think of Cushing in this? It's weird that um, he turns out really late in the film. You know, for an hour and it's hour and twenty two. Hour and twenty-two minute film. So an hour and twenty-minute film. He turns up like 20, 25 minutes into the film, which comparatively is is pretty late for your, you know, one of your main protagonists to turn up. But that's the other thing as well. You think that your main protagonist is Jonathan Harker, but he gets as spoilers for a film that came out in nineteen fifty-eight. He gets he's gone. He's he's killed within he's like useless. twenty minutes. Yeah, well, yeah, he is he's absolutely useless, yeah. Um, but it's kind of... I, I, I don't think that had really been done. And, like, and I mean, a couple of years later when Hitchcock did it in Psycho, yeah, it was kind of... That's kind of a bit more well-known for, like, all right, I thought she was the main character, but you've just bumped her off in the shower. But, yeah, to, Peter Cushion turns up relatively late. And from what I remember, his... His entrance in the film, like you said, it's not a very rah kind of entrance. He doesn't get the big stood at the top of the stairs, flashy kind of entrance that Christopher Lee gets. But it's kind of cool that you don't see him. You just see the side of his face as the barman's talking to him. And that's kind of like, who is this fucking guy? So you immediately want to know who this guy is, that everybody's... He seems to know what's going on and everybody's a bit wary of him and stuff. And and then he just... it's this. I, I don't know whether it's just a... a, a an age thing, like my age, or the, the you know the the time that I've been alive, or whatever. It's like, but the way that they speak is so authoritative that when you hear Peter Cushion speak, you're like, this guy knows what he's on about. And when you hear Christopher Lee speak, you're like, this guy is in charge. So you kind of listen to them, and right, okay, these everybody else is like, so what do we do now? Where do we do this and we do that? You know, it's like. Okay, <laughs> they're just so commanding. I guess is the word for it. They, the, the pair of them, in their own in their own way, with their own role in a specific way, are just are very commanding. And that might just be the the tone of the voice or whatever. You know, like when I was in the studio a couple of weeks ago with Jace Lewis of Jace Lewis fame, and he's saying to me, you know, you're ready to record, and and, it, and I just turned around and went, you may fire when ready, you know. And it's like, and he's like, why don't people speak like that anymore? And it's like, well, they don't because, you know, people are assholes and they want to knock the tees off of everything. But just that that way of speaking, I, for me personally, I just love listening to it. And and two of the best voices you could listen to like that are Peter Cushion and Christopher Lee. <laughs> so you stick them together. It's just, uh, yeah, for me, the, those two, like I said, those two are like one of the best double acts you could get. And in this film and... To a certain degree, Curse of Frankenstein, but Christopher Lee doesn't speak in that. But so this one is, this is the one for me for those two. You know, other people might go for, um, you know, what was it Hound of the Baskervilles? They, I think they they did together. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. Do you? I've not asked you this before, but I just thought I might bring it up now because I always see um, the fifties and sixties particularly as the the trio. So I would include Vincent Price uh, into the Peter yeah. Cushion, Christopher Lee sort of holy trinity of actors here. Yeah. Um, yeah. But 
I always feel like that the I can't choose between Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Just can't choose between them because whenever they're on screen, I am completely engrossed in what they're doing, and it I can't choose between them. What in terms of like who's the who's my favorite? Uh, you know, there's always you've always what, got to have in a this favorite. film. Oh, in this, mean, film, in this film, I, yeah, again, no, both in this film as well. When they're together, I can't, I can't pick between them. See, for me, it's it's Christopher Lee. Yeah, just just there's just something about Christopher Lee that's just. I mean, maybe it's because he's Dracula. That just makes him cooler, you know. And then, oh yeah, he's fucking Saruman as well. So, you know, and, and then everything else, you know. Even in Sleepy Hollow, when he says that brilliant bit when he goes with their heads lopped off, you're like, that's that's fucking class. Why does he do that bit with his hand? It's fucking brilliant. But um, so does, yeah, for me, it's it's Christopher Lee just edges it out a bit, you know. And does Vincent Price get a look in? Vincent Price, see, to me, Vincent Price, I never really got into many Vincent Price films. So so like I said, I watched started watching Hammer, uh, Hammer horror films as a kid. So. To me, uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, Dracula, Van Helsing, that's, that's, you know. And as a kid, Vincent Price was the guy talking in Thriller. You know, that's, <laughs> you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, So, So for me, it's like, ah, oh, right, okay, I need to, you know, as I got older, it's like, right, I, I need to do my homework, my Vincent Price homework, you know, and then you go, which find a general and all that kind of stuff, you know. So it's like, um, yeah, so, and, you know, Maybe it's because, um, I don't know, maybe it's a British thing as well, you know. Like, yeah, there's Vincent Price, yeah, but we've got, you know, we've got these two, you know. We're going to finish off the conversation with a, with a little bit about... Why? This. Why are we <laughs> finishing? I'm just looking at the time and thinking, wow, this is overrun. But at the same time, it's so good. It's so weird. I could talk to you for ages just about these idiots <laughs> that are long, long gone. Um, this ex. Explosive, and I put this in my notes, explosive finale, right? Yeah. Um, running around corridors to kick off with, I always hate that. I always, always hate that. And for some reason, I don't hate aliens when the, the majority of the final half of the film is that. Yeah. And I don't hate this one. But that sort of trope really grinds me down. I don't know why this is better for having it in there. And then right. the actual finale, again, spoilers for a very old film, but just having the the quick look at the curtains, uh, and I'm going to make a run for it. Like, yeah, I love it, and I'm just like, oh, please make it before he gets you. Please make it. Like, I yeah. love that bit. Like, is it, does it still hold excitement for you when you watch that finale? Because it is special. It's it's uh, I I love that ending, and one of the cool things i like about it is running for the running along the table and jumping up and grabbing the curtains yes. and pulling them down that was peter cushion's idea no yeah 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 Brilliant. he was like why don't i do this and they're like well, uh, yeah if you want and and he also said how about if i grab the two candlesticks and make a cross out of that because i've been using proper crucifixes all the way through the film how about i use a makeshift one now because that'd be cool yeah um, That's I'm great. pretty sure Peter Cushion didn't say because that would be cool. I'm pretty sure he didn't say that. Um, <laughs> I won't quote. But yeah, that, so that, that that was his idea. But if I was thinking as I was watching it earlier today that if I was to do a remake or you know a version of Dracula or whatever that had that ending in it, um, I would pretty much do that because there's something fucking awesome. Just pegging it along a table and just jumping up and 
grabbing this massive curtain at this huge window, pulling it down so it, the, the sunlight comes in and lands on Dracula's foot yeah. and disintegrates his foot. And you're like, whoa. And then when he blasts him with the crucifix and then just pushes him into the sunlight. Now, I don't know which version you watched. Did you watch the newer version that's got the um, stuff restored in it? Um, I watched the bit where his face sort of, at the end, it goes like a flaky white. Uh, did he Did he scratch his face off? No, no, I didn't oh, watch right. that version. Okay. Ooh, right, okay, because they found some footage that was cut. Um, and, and there's a couple bits from one of the staking scenes that they, that they put back in. And Dracula getting a bit sexy before he bites one of the women. He gets a little bit all, oh, before he sinks his teeth in. And they put some stuff back in at the end that was deemed a bit too bit too gruesome at the time. Okay. It's not that gruesome at all. But it's basically he just, he just pulls a layer of his face off as he's disintegrating. And they found it somewhere in Tokyo and restored it as good as they could get it and put it back into the uh, Blu-ray release, I think. I've got a very um, old DVD from a boot fair. Ah, yeah. So, yeah, if it was before, I think it was 2011, I think they did it. So if it was before then, it would be the original version, I guess. Um, but that's, that again, that's that's now vampires turned to dust. That's That's where it happened. And now it happens in Blade. You know, it's yeah. like that, that's still, they just turned to ash. That's what happened in 1958. And they're still doing it now. You know that's how how sort of iconic that was, and it's and it's even when you watch it now and you're kind of thinking, well, it was 1958. They had no CGI. They had bugger all, really. So how are they? You know, when you think about how they do that, it's it's still pretty. It holds up. You know, I mean, the thing is, some people are unable to watch a film with its historical context, you know, like, oh, they won't watch carrying, they can't watch Carrie without going, oh, look at all the flares, you know, or whatever. It's like, you, you've got to, you got to remember when something was made and watching Dracula as it is now, it's still perfectly watchable. I mean, it, it yeah. might kind of dip in the middle because like we said, um, Peter Cushing comes in fairly late and when he comes in fairly late, Christopher Lee disappears for like 40 minutes. So you're like, where's this fucking Dracula guy that everybody's talking about that is apparently the title of the film? But he's kind of this threat in the background. That they, it's kind of, they've got to get to the realisation that we've got to get rid of this guy and then we'll be okay. Um, but yeah, that whole ending, that's, that's just a, that's a, that's a, a big ending for quite a low-key film in, in and of itself. I mean, not, not in terms of what it achieved or what it, you know, uh, popular culture kind yeah. of thing. Um, it's quite a low-key film. There's a lot of people standing around, sitting around, talking. They sometimes stake somebody, but, you know, and then you get this big ending. Because that's one thing you forget as well with this. Christopher Lee, for a guy who's like six foot five or whatever, he fucking shifts in this film when he needs yes. to. That bit where he, pe when he pegs it up the stairs. It's like, Jesus, he's taking those stairs like six at a time or something. And that's the other thing as well. I don't know if you've noticed it. His footsteps don't make a fucking sound in that film. No, I you didn't watch it notice. Again, he, his, his footsteps don't make a sound. Everybody else does when they're running up and down the stairs or just walking around the place. But he doesn't make a sound. I just thought that was so cool. Just a little detail 
but I never picked up on until I watched it today that his footsteps when he when he brings Jonathan Harker in and, and let, he says let me take your bags or something they walk a bit you can Jonathan Harker's footsteps you hear but Christopher Lee doesn't make a sound that's great I think it's I need to invest so cool. in a blu-ray just to to listen to a commentary or two about this cuz there there's yeah, so yeah, much yeah. I don't know that's why that's why I love commentaries they're like it's it's like a 2 hour film school just on one film you know I I I've always loved commentaries but they seem to be they seem to be coming a thing of a past, which is a bit annoying. Okay. Well, I mean, that was so good, Paul. Thank you so much for taking part. <laughs> Honestly, I've fun. enjoyed that one more than I have for for any for a long time. Also, I've got the giggles in the middle, which rarely happens. <laughs> so I want to thank you for I that. I can't even well. remember what that was about now. <laughs> like, nor me. <laughs> but it was funny. <laughs> funny as fuck. <laughs> James Bernard, I haven't yet talked about on A Year in Horror, but I have mentioned his scores in passing. When I say something like Hammeresque, or when I made that comparison to The Devil Rides Out score just a few episodes ago, well, in those circumstances, I am talking about James Bernard. These scores are so iconic and so integrated into my very being that it's really difficult to be critical about it. Dracula is just as incredible as The Devil Rides Out, Plague of the Zombies, The Damned, and one of my personal favourites, She. I can't choose between them. Now, I do know that Bernard enrolled as a student at the Royal College of Music in London in 1947, and he graduated two years later. And you can hear this. Uh, you can hear that classical training. It underpins all his best work. But he never rips them off. In the Dracula score alone, there is some echoes of Schubert, Brahms, Wagner, and it all underpins this spooky, sweeping orchestral motif that he brings in. And let's face it, tropey horror is key to making this work. I get that. But those classical influences, they are so important here. It brings an oldie time feel, a gravitas to an otherwise simply just creepy soundtrack. And this is what I also love about it. None of them are perfect. But it is perfect for Hammer Horror. I don't think there's any one Hammer Horror film that I give 10 out of 10 to. I don't think they're perfect. But it doesn't stop me from loving them. It is just such a fantastic mix of, and I guess for the time old and new and i tell you what i was gutted that i couldn't find it on spotify i only know these scores from watching the movies but if you type in james bernard uh, dracula into youtube you're gonna be a very happy horror fan indeed there was loads there and yeah thank you as well to paul chanter i forgot to say that thank you so much for coming on and chatting about this one i think that has been my favorite conversation with paul so far and this does happen eventually when I do all these interviews and we have regular guests. I just feel like I've not met Paul before, but I know if I do, I just feel like he's a mate now. 
and I can't wait to actually meet him in real life and have a pint or whatever. It's another reason why I love doing this. The people I get to chat with time and time again, they're just so cool. Right, okay, where can you find this? It is not streaming anywhere for free, not in America, not in the UK. But what I could find is that it's available on pay-per-view everywhere. But no matter where you live, there's going to be a Blu-ray Hammer box set that's going to include a sweet-looking transfer of Dracula 1958. There's usually on these box sets a ton of supplementary information to boot, and they're usually really well-priced. So, come on. I mean, come on. Podcasts. Well, the final girls did an episode on Dracula and they paired it with Dracula from 1931 and also Dracula from 1979, which is not my favourite adaptation, but I'm not going to let you know. I'm not going to spoil their podcast, but I'll tell you what, it's really good listen and it's particularly great when they talk about the 79 adaptation. So yes, as that one, that came out in November 2020. But after you've heard that, I would then head over to a podcast called Decades of Horror, the classic era. Uh, they do just over an hour worth of chatting about Dracula 58. And that is just Dracula 58 on its own. And that episode, that came out in October 2021. And that, my good podcasting listening friends, is your lot. In at number nine, also from 1958, is a rather underseen Japanese marvel. A movie that is dealing with bullish samurais, ghosts, revenge and cats. I know this one is underseen because at the time of putting this together, there are only 745 people that have logged it as seen on Letterboxd. And the YouTube rip that I watched has only 110 views. And yes, it was the only place that I could find this one. I was reluctant because usually the uploads onto YouTube from this period, they can be a bit sketchy. Sketchy as hell, actually, if you go by what I've watched in the past. But this one was a pretty clean transfer. Not HD by any means, but it was really watchable. And the sound was clear enough on it. Uh, and most importantly, the subtitles were on point. As for the music on it, not so much. It wasn't so clear. What's this film called? Well, my number nine is The Black Cat Mansion, a.k.a. The Mansion of the Ghost Cat. Now, as way of uh, description of what's actually going on in the film, I think the most I'm going to give you is this. And of course, it comes from the letterboxed synopsis. Here we go. The descendant of the servant of a cruel and vicious samurai returns to the town where she was born. 
only to find that a cat who is possessed by the spirits of those murdered by the samurai is trying to kill her. Now, I think this is probably going to be the shortest one of these that I've ever done, at least for a top 10 movie, because it is so underseen and it is so easy to access that I don't want to spoil it for anybody that wants to give it a go. The cinematography by Tadashi Nishimoto, who is best known for his work with the Bruce Lee classics The Way of the Dragon and Game of Death. Well, that cinematography is outstanding at points. You get an unusually realistic sense of spatial whereabouts and awareness at all times. And I am talking about from the actual facade of those ancient looking Japanese homes to the gardens, the forests, the ponds, the swamps that surround them. It sets up a really beautiful world and it is captured exquisitely. I love the story, of course, but that one is just not very complex at all. But it does the job. But I think here without Nishimoto's vision, I think this one would just sort of be outside of my top 10. Now, I don't normally say or do this, but try not to go to the wiki page for this one as it gives the game away pretty quick. But at the bottom, there's a couple of interesting review snippets. So I'm going to read them out to you. So Steve Biodrosky, he, of course, of Cinefastique Online, wrote that this film is not a masterpiece that will sway the uninitiated, but that it is an atmospheric and well-executed genre piece. And Scott Fouts of Sarudama.com, he called this film a tragic ghost story and highly recommended it to fans of J-horror. And I think I have to agree with both of these. It is not a 10 out of 10 masterpiece. I personally scored it a 7 out of 10. And yes, you will definitely catch a lot of those J-horror tropes uh, that we are so used to from the late 90s and the noughties. But I mentioned it a little bit earlier. The music here, there is very little information on this movie out there. And I couldn't find the score anywhere. And even though the picture transfer is pretty cool on YouTube, the sound, as I say, is okay. But the music is not so great. And I don't want to judge the music in this film if I can't hear exactly how it's meant to sound. So unfortunately for this part, I think we've just got a forward wind. And where can you watch Black Cat Mansion? Well, YouTube was the only place that I could find this one at all. As for podcasts, you are listening to the only podcast that has talked about this movie. And as I say, it's really resonated with me. Maybe you'll love it even more than I did. It is only 70 minutes long. Uh, I mean, what have you got to lose? And once again, I am talking about Black Cat Mansion, a.k.a. The Mansion of the Ghost Cat. Alfred Hitchcock, he's a wonderful director of film, right? No one can do Hitchcock at his best like Hitchcock can do Hitchcock. Well, hang on, I think De Palma came close on Sisters, Dress to Kill, Blowout and Body Double. In fact, last week I even watched Fincher's Panic Room and I found a load of nods to Hitchcock there regarding film technique and composition and the energy throughout. Uh, it's a real tricky story and it's put together really well. But this one, this is different. This is as good as Hitchcock at his very best. And if we're talking horror, then right now we are talking even more intense 
than Hitchcock. Of course we are. This is French. Director Henri Georges Clouseau unbelievably made just one horror effort. But I mean, what a goal. This is Diabolic. Une baignoire. Diabolic. Un costume d'homme. Diabolic. Une malle en osier. Diabolic. Une piscine. Qui l'a enfoncé sous l'eau And here is the letterboxed synopsis. See it, be amazed at it, but be quiet about it. The cruel and abusive headmaster of a boarding school, Mikel Daracel, is murdered by an unlikely duo, his meek wife and the mistress he brazenly flaunts. The women become increasingly unhinged by a series of odd coincidences after his corpse mysteriously disappears. So, as it says on the poster, see it, be amazed at it, but be quiet about it. So, I am not going to spoil this one at all, because this is a wonderful, wonderful mystery, and a really, really early example of the twist ending. Straight off the bat, I think that's what this film is known best for. And I also need to say at this point that this is one of the most meticulously crafted scripts in horror ever to be crafted. The pacing is almost impossibly perfect and the acting for the most part is utterly convincing with both those two female lead roles. And please excuse me for not even trying to pronounce the name of each of these French actors because I do feel that this would be an insult not just to them but to the whole of my neighbouring nation of France. I think it's essential viewing, not just because I think it's a fine example of where French cinema was at during this period, but because it runs for almost two hours and it never ever feels that way. It's a really early example of letting a movie tell its story no matter the film length and ignoring the surrounding studio or political influences and pressures. I cannot begin to tell you at how many times I've looked at a film's running time over the past year and just instantly have been put off by it. Just as I was by this one when I first saw what I had to go through. But I tell you, within 10 minutes, I'd forgotten all about it. I was just sucked into these characters and the murder mystery as it played out in front of my very eyes. This is one of those put your phone down films. I was gripping the edge of my seat at points. So I would just suggest you just hold on for the ride. And as for that ending, it is so cunning. It is so clever. Bloody hell, I loved it. And also, before I talk about the music, I just want to say this looks wonderful as well. Again, even though the pressure was on, it took twice as long as a scheduled shoot of 48 days to complete this. Cinematographer Armand Tirard, he even employed a second crew for covering the shots just to speed up the process. But I guess to make art this intrinsically all-encompassing, you've just got to take the time.
So that was George Van Paris. Going to say that. Why not? You only get the music over the opening and really quickly on the end credits of this one. It's really strange. The only other music in the film is some diegetic music that's playing on the radio. But what we do have here is a very cool and bright and really dramatic piece. Tons of stabs, maybe a bit too many stabs. For me, I think this is definitely a theme tune, but I don't think this style would play well within the film as a whole because it is a lot. But I like that we don't get that music during the film. It makes complete sense because this film plays out as real and there is no musical guide telling us exactly how we should feel except for what we see on the screen. Where can you find this film? Well, Criterion Collection, they have the Blu-ray and use that all the way. There are versions out there on YouTube, but why put yourself through that pain, through that heartache of not getting it just so beautiful when Criterion went to all the wonderful effort that they did to bring you that Blu-ray? As for podcasts, there's just one I want to mention, and this podcast introduced me to the film, and it pairs it with another favourite of mine called Repulsion from 65. So, of course, it is the biggie. It's Evolution of Horror. I would definitely say now the biggest horror podcast in the UK, and they talk about Diabolic on their 2020 episode from July. It's a proper good stuffing. number seven we visit a legend mr vincent price this film is from 1959 and let me tell you price had an incredibly busy and an incredibly successful year he kicked it off with the release of this film which we'll get into momentarily and then shortly after he starred in return of the fly Now, that was a movie that he believed should have found far greater success than it did at the box office. But if I am being honest, it's a rather lacklustre sequel to a pretty much great film. Still, it raked in domestically a tally of around $28 when you adjust it for inflation, which wasn't too shabby at all because it looks like it might have cost just a few thrupney bits at the time. Now, I don't know who the heckery Vincent Price thinks he is here, but next up, he did a non-horror. It's a film called The Big Circus, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, it was his most successful film from 1959 as well. It raked in the equivalent of $117 at the box office. Apparently, it's all about this fella that is going to lose his circus due to some crappy finances that are going on and then someone starts killing people. Also, it includes zero dancing skeletons. So, what is the point? Shortly after this, William Castle released The Tingler, starring Price in the lead role, of course. He played Dr. Warren Chapin. And this one, it clocked up to 43 mil in today's dollars. 
And he finished out that year with the moderately successful The Bat, uh, and that brought home 38 million worth of rashers of bacon. So what did we miss out at the beginning? Well, it was his most successful genre pick of the year. It bagged an equivalent of $65 million on its domestic run. We have another William Castle banger. It is, of course, The House on Haunted Hill. I'm Vincent Price, and you're invited to my party in the house on Haunted Hill, where so far the ghosts have murdered only seven people. So won't you come and make it... Eight? You'll see human heads without bodies. Ah! Mysterious pools of blood dripping from the ceiling. The walls move slowly in against you. Don't try to escape, you can't. The letterbox synopsis kicks off with this statement. Consult your doctor, bring your seatbelts. Frederick Lorraine has invited five strangers to a party of a lifetime. He is offering each of them $10,000 if they can stay the night in a house. But the house is no ordinary house. This house has a reputation for murder. Frederick offers them each one gun for protection. They all arrived in a hearse and will either leave in it $10,000 richer or leave in it dead. Now, there is this great documentary about William Castle. It is called Spine Tingler, the William Castle Story. It's directed itself by Geoffrey Swartz, and it goes through stuff from the very early beginnings of his life until his successful heyday. And in this, you learn loads. I loved his rivalry with Alfred Hitchcock, and I loved all those bits where there's interviews with the fans that love his films. It's such a good watch. Now, I happen to own all of the William Castle Vincent Price movies, and I believe I saw it as some bonus content of one of those, but I haven't gotten with me as I record this. But if you do get a chance, I promise you that this documentary is a delightful and interesting watch. So that was Spine Tingler, the William Castle story, and I think that came out in 2015. And as a final thought to The House on Haunted Hill, I think that this must be in the public domain as it's on YouTube with a decent picture uploaded by about 30 different people. And you know what? This is just one of those comfort watches for me. If ever I can't find something to watch, my algorithm just picks this thing up and it seems to read my mind and I'll just pop it on and fall asleep watching that crazy dancing skeleton and one of my favourite ever Vincent Price performances. It is just that good. Honestly, there is just no excuse to have not seen this one, except blindness. I'll accept blindness, but that's it. That's your one excuse.
The classical score here is credited to Richard Kane, Richard Loring and Von Dexter. That's what it says on the wiki page for the film. But all other sources that I've found credit this one solely to Von Dexter. And it is a difficult one to research as there isn't a lot out there about any release of this score except to say that some YouTuber called Mark Harwood, what he's done, he has taken all the musical cues from House on Haunted Hill and he's uploaded them all to YouTube, cutting out the majority of the dialogue. Now reading the notes on that one, he believes that the score in its complete form is a lost score and thus his upload seems to be the only way that you can listen to this unless you're actually watching the film itself. And from what he pulled from the film, it's sort of impossible to tell whether this is going to work separately, as there are too many noises, there's too many footsteps, there's books being pulled, there's slaps, there's knocks, thunderclaps, chairs being placed, and of course, skeletons being shook. What I do like, though, is the tone of this thing. It is light and it is full of Halloween-style oohs and ahs, there's a theremin that's blaring at points and the piano occasionally sets up the scares, which is quite a rare treat in 50s horror. But as I said, it's just very difficult to judge it in this state because you might as well just watch the movie. And where can you find that movie? Well, as I've already harped on, YouTube is the place. There are lots of different DVD copies out there. They're all very cheap. I imagine the picture quality on them is going to vary wildly, so... My advice at the moment, go to YouTube. As for podcasts, Bloody Date Night did their review of House on Haunted Hill back in August 2021. And I also checked out Ice Cream Parlours. Now that's a pun, Ice Cream Parlour. Their episode on it is from October 2019. Both of them are good, but there is a lot out there of this one. So choose wisely. And that's your lot for House on Haunted Hill. go now we're going to hit the next bunch of also rands hard and although i have watched some of these a few times now i think i can tell you that all of these are worth watching at least once i'll say that there are a couple of massive big hitters amongst this lot please don't hate at me this is all my opinion and on this podcast as you know opinions are subjective Another thing maybe it's good to mention is that a lot of these I've caught for the very first time. And with that being said, let's begin. First up in the also rans is The Mad Magician. And here, Vincent Price does it again. Master of disguise and evil cunning. This time around, he seems to have taken things a bit far, if I'm being honest. He has had his pride and his ego hurt, but it was all his silly doing in the first place. This film should be called Vincent Price is the silly magician and causes all his own problems. It's not a snappy title, but it does the job. Moving on, we have The H-Man. That is H as in the letter. 
H. And just so you're aware, this is not a film about fellow regular podcaster Howard Smith from the band Acid Rain. Instead, this is a Japanese B-movie about radioactive monster sludge that melts people to nothing. It's very chat-heavy, as a lot of these films are, and it contains a few too many subplots regarding gangs and dancing girls and scientists and the cops. To be honest, it's all a bit much, and for the first time ever, I found myself being really annoyed at having to read the dialogue on the screen because I was just missing so much of the action. It all ends up in the sewers, and I felt at the end of this that it was just a lot. I do believe if I ever approach this one again, I think I'm just going to have the English dub on, if there is one. Following this, we have The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And I'd say about this one is Think Godzilla with a less interesting backstory. It's got a flabby middle and it's got an amazing final act. There you go. Following this, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Science couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon. A throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago. Immensely strong and destructive. A woman's beauty, the bait that brought it out of its lair. See underwater thrills never photographed before. See titanic underwater battles never dreamed of before in this most terrifying of the science fiction adventures. Now this is one of those movies that is considered an all-time classic and I had a massive problem with this the very first time that I watched it. I simply thought it was a cheap, hammy mess in the same way that Plan 9 from Outer Space is. This all being said, that means I was delighted when Graham Bywater, who last joined us for The Slayer on the 1982 Big Hitter episode that we had out in December 2020, he wanted to return to talk about the creature. And here he is, in conversation. Enjoy it, you enjoyers of a 1950s terror and monsters. It's a good one. The guy's a good egg. And this is the creature from the Black Lagoon. So you just mentioned that um, you watched this film on Christmas Day. We had to. Yeah, he's just absolutely besotted with the Black Lagoon. He thinks it's the greatest film ever. Watches it all the time, even on his own. Doesn't skip anything, watches it from start to finish. He's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so that's cool. The only problem is I always have to explain to him at the end that Gilman, he's not dead. Because... I mean, I've never seen the sequels. I've only seen bits of them. But I know, obviously, he's meant to be dead at the end. Yeah. But I have to explain to Luke that he's, he's okay. He's just resting. Because um, it's quite a downbeat ending, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you can definitely see Gilman as, like, an anti-hero. It's not his fault. It's brilliant. Let's get into it then. So, with the 20s, 30s, 40s, Whenever I think of that era, I'm just thinking of the Universal Monsters. It, it just tends to be, I lump that all into one, and all I'm thinking of is Universal. Yeah. And it took like a real deep dive to actually think, well, actually, it's not all that. Although 
it extended all the way to to this one. Can you? Was it? Yes, surprisingly, this this was one of the very last ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's so, and one of the most popular still to to this mm, day. Yeah. What What's your experience with the Universal monsters? Are you as keen on any of them as you are with the Gilman? Well, I think they're all relatable in one way or another, and I think they all require a level of sympathy. The one that stuck with me and scared the crap out of me as a child is the Invisible Man. There was something about the Invisible Man that just, there was an 80s, I think it was an early 80s TV show, wasn't there? British TV series, The Invisible Man, which was absolutely terrifying to the core as a kid. But I think there's, obviously people relate to expression, don't they? That's how we, that's how we understand of people. So to have that taken away, to me, it's the faceless protagonist is terrifying. So that was the one that I still wouldn't want to watch that again now because I found it so scary as a kid. Yeah, what about you? I mean, which 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 of those characters? I've got to say to? exactly the same as you. Um, I think that the issue that I've got with it is that if you say to someone, "My favourite character is Jack Griffin," they'll be like, hmm. "Who? You know what?" Hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't, it's, it's not Dracula, it's not Frankenstein's monster, it's nothing big, it's it's really weird. So coming to the movie initially, it was like, okay, I'll stick this one on, see what it's like. You know, I'd already seen like the, the remake that came out a couple of years back. Uh, so it was a real yeah. recent thing for me. And I was blown away by it. I was actually blown away. I yeah. loved, I loved that there was a character in it and it's crazy old lady. It's just like, can't believe what's going on. And I, I, I actually laughed at one of these films, and that is a rare thing for me. Uh, yeah, I, I loved it from beginning to end, and I was so happy at that moment that I bought that box set. And because it was one of the first ones that I picked from it, it was like, right, I'm going to go for it and like delve mm. in. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. I never, I never much warmed to The Mummy. <laughs> I'm not sure why. I've seen so many films about mummies and it's just, I don't know, there's something that doesn't really do it for me. I think, obviously, we're saying like Creature from Black Lagoon, he's definitely my favourite. This is it, right? So The Creature, for me, is one of the middling films. I, and when you mentioned it, I was like, fantastic, because we've got a fan here and mm. we can go into it. Now, I've watched several little documentaries as well about this of people going to visit the site where it was filmed and things like that. And it's really interesting what people get out of it. I mean, these are lifers that are like, uh, one of the things that I watched was someone was moaning that the gift shop didn't have a pin that you couldn't just buy on the internet and things like that. <laughs> so it was really, people are intense about it. Tattoos, you name it. As you were saying, like this, the location is one of the most important things about it. Because I mean, it's in Tallahassee, which is, what a word, I mean, amazing but there's been loads of other films shot at silver spring studio as well because they did thunderball there in the same location wow which is a film i've not seen for a long time but they did like tarzan that was filmed on the same set yeah i'm not sure which tarzan but i mean never say never again was another one i think which i mean i'm not a bond fan but they they did locate so they did use that location for a fair few bond films apparently That's um I can see that now, like speedboats jumping yeah. over. Yeah, I can well, it's see a great that. setting, isn't it? The setting is, is, for me, the most vital part of the film. I was thinking this the other day when I revisited, um, going off topic slightly, when I revisited Wolf Creek, 
because I absolutely adore Wolf Creek and think it's a masterpiece film. But that film is all about where they are, where they're set, the fact that there's no one there, similar to Alien, I guess, no one knows they're there. That's what's scary about it. And yeah, Black, Black Lagoon, which it just, I mean, that, that's one of the best things about it. That's one of the reasons it's, I mean, Dracula's castle is fantastic, but the lagoon, my goodness, just such a mystery, isn't it? I loved it, yeah. absolutely love it. Well, another thing we talk about, the girl man, I think like he's the most relatable of all the characters as well, because he's got an innocence and you do actually genuinely really feel for him because at no point in the film is he trying to harm anybody. They kind of push him to this point, almost like the first Rambo film where he's just trying to make friends with him, get on with life. But they sort of push him to this point where he does at the end just go, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal the lady. And he does. Takes her back to his cave. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's funny because Julie Adams is amazing. Like she is absolutely brilliant in that film. And the swimming scene, as you said, that sequence. Yeah. My goodness. I mean, I don't even know how they filmed that. It's mad, isn't it? It's like the sort of water level where you're. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, yeah. So that's for me, that scene takes it above just an average monster movie of the time but that scene alone is enough to to draw you in uh, and mm. it's the one thing that stuck with me after my first viewing is like a how they do it why is it so beautiful why is it that scene alone has given like the the monster so much more yeah. than just just a, a monster that's going to slash you up what i'm interested here is in the 50s, you've got so many, so many films to choose from. It's not like we've just picked one year. This is the 50s, and you've gone for this one in particular. Mm. What is it that first enticed you to this Gilman creature? Um, I, mean, I guess a lot of it is to do with, the, as we said, the location, the setting. First, I mean, when did you first see it? Is it last year. Last year. Okay. Yeah, 2020. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of those ones that I watched a long time ago and stuck with me and I always meant to watch again. But the problem was all of the DVDs and YouTube uploads were poor quality. Yeah. So I ended up finally trying to get my hands on a good print of it. And I just fallen in love with it again. I mean, there are other films from 1954, like, as I said, the first Godzilla film, that's 54. So that was kind of my first choice when we were talking. But I think Creature from the Black Lagoon is just, it's just such a beautiful, poignant film. It's so... It's, it's funny in places, it's downbeat at the end, it's really hypnotic, it's beautiful, it's just everything going for it. And I can understand why it's so popular. It just seems like the ideal horror film of that decade, in my opinion. When I think of the 50s, I just think of Godzilla and Gilman. Those are the two that... It's weird. Really, yeah. I, I feel like when I think of the 50s before I went into this year, before I delved into it all for the decade, I just thought of flying saucers that's all i thought mm. flying saucers yep. attacking the earth that's what this yeah. this whole decade's going to be it could have been a mess uh, it was directed really well i think it was really I mean, tight yeah. um and what the issue for me with so many 50s film uh is just the talking the padding out yeah is, is often <laughs> rubbish and it, although there is like padding in this it's not bad you know you, you can <laughs> all right okay i'm on to the next scene brilliant yeah, it builds tension. I like that. I think, I mean, Jack Arnold, he's he's a astounding director, isn't he? Well, the year before, I got a problem with his It Came From Outer Space. Like when he right. when I watched that, I was just like, this can't be the same guy. 
because I just thought it was a bit of a mess. And again, it too is. much chatting and it didn't it didn't all sort of gel like this one did. And I don't know what happened between that year. I know this is an earthbound story. And, you know, I, I imagine the, the script alone was just a lot, lot smaller, a lot easier to work with. But, yeah. but somehow, like, everything is pieced together so well here. Everything just gels so well. And yet that one before is like flabby. you got bits like, where, yeah. where's that going? Nowhere. I'm surprised that to see Jack Arnold's name on both. Um, but I don't was really it, know where he went from here. Do you know? Well, obviously he was in, um, he was in the Air Force before he started making films and he wanted to basically replicate what he'd seen in the army into sort of horror on the screen. Right. But he was, by all accounts, he was a mystery. There's not a lot of people know much about him. I know he was friends with Clint Eastwood and he gave Clint Eastwood his first ever film role, which was in Return of the Creature. But I mean, yeah, it came from outer space, is flabby, as you said, tarantula. I don't know if you've seen that's a bit iffy. I have, I didn't know that was him. Yeah, that well, yeah, that is again too talky, but it's fun. Yeah. Like I enjoyed watching that one. Yeah, and the Incredible uh, Shrinking Man, who did that as well. There's loads of them. I mean, he was obviously a leading figure, wasn't he, at the time in the fifties? But he was, um, as I say, he was he was a bit of a recluse. Didn't do a great deal of interviews. Not a great deal of history about him. I'm not entirely sure what films he did towards the end of his career. A director's careers from that era are really odd anyway because yeah. you can you can tell what is a like done for cash studio yeah. job and what is a passion project and you can see through it a mile off you know maybe maybe this was the sort of thing that was going on but it's just such a drastic difference between those two films and they they were done so close together that oh, yeah, yeah i often find it really odd um just thinking about it over these past few months of like how that came to be as i say i've watched these films really close together yeah, I mean the same. The same can be said for a lot of directors. I mean, if you look at Lucio Fulci's career, for example, he was doing films for twenty-five years before he made Zombie Flesh Eaters. No one knows any of these films. It's all just romance and uh, crime films and comedies. And then he just found his niche in horror films. He didn't even like horror films. It was. It's hilarious, but that's obviously that's what he's remembered for, isn't it? Yeah, too right. Yeah, when I <laughs> when I click on his name and I see such a vast uh, array mm. of stuff, I'm just like, oh, here we go. And when you yeah. scroll down to the bottom of Letterbox, then you think, what is this? <laughs> I don't. Yeah. What what is this one? Yeah, I mean, some of his later stuff's terrible, but. Well, I've yet, I've yet to see it. I know the, the I know the rumors. Well, I say rumors. I know the reviews uh, are really awful, and it's the same with Argento as well. Like uh, those latter day films, like people pan them, but I'm still oh, excited God. to see them. Well, I love Phenomena. That's the last one of his that I think is really good. That's one of my favorites. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it's really good. But then there's, there's stuff like Trauma, and as soon as he started casting his daughter in all of the films. It just didn't work. You know, it sort of became more of a sort of, what's the word, like a vanity project for Asia Argento. I don't know if you've seen his version of Phantom of the Opera. It's, it's atrocious. It's on my list. No, I haven't. The only one oh, I've seen is Sleepless. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, didn't like that at all. Didn't, no. <laughs> but he did a one called The Card Player, I think, a few years ago. Just absolutely slated by the critics. Brilliant. I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> 
I watched so many uh, of those Italian directors. I watched so many when I started this whole project and I hated them. I couldn't get with it. And it's only yeah. in the last couple of months that they've all hit me and like, oh, I need to watch that again. Yeah. What was, what was the one that really got me? There was Kill Baby Kill, which was last night. And it was just like, well, that's Barber now. Barber. Mm. I've just like suddenly understood. And I'm now going to yeah. have to go back because everything I slated before, it's like, hang on. I've, I've never been a huge fan of Barber, to be honest with you. I like Black Sunday. Um, have you seen Twitch of the Death Note? Yes, yes, I have, yeah. yeah. I didn't like that one. Yeah, I, I gave I it one out of five. No, I didn't like it either. I don't like his son's films either, because his son's been a few slashes. Yeah, I mean, the Italian stuff, I go in and out of love with it. I mean, I haven't, I went for years now watching Argento, but now I just can't start watching Argento again. Just completely back into it. It's also filmed by Aldi Lardo. Night Train Murders. Have you seen that? No. It's absolutely brilliant. It's like Last House on the Left. It's on a train. Really? So, this is why I love getting you on. <laughs> the last time I got, got to see that. Awesome list. <laughs> Night, no, honestly, Night Train Murders is, is brilliant. It's really creepy. It's got a Morricone soundtrack. Wonderfully filmed. It's got two of the members of Rondo uh, Rosso in it. So it's sort of a high caliber of cast. But it's nasty. There's a couple of scenes which really flick with you. Before we go into the patron side of thing, I just want to ask you about the creature design here okay. for, for Gilman. So, yeah, I, I know we went off on a tangent and I'm keeping all that in because I bloody love it myself. But <laughs> this creature design was initially, whilst I was a youth, I was not into it. I always saw this as something as whenever it would come up on clip shows, it's just like, oh, this looks cheesy crap. This is rubbish i'm not going to watch this and i i guess as i've got older uh, i'm far more willing to watch something like this uh, or or even yeah. like um the the real cheap that that Flor the guy that was in florida sting of death i think it was called i watched recently oh, yeah. um yeah, and clear. and i'm like well this is just a wetsuit like this mm. is no budget and i'm loving it i'm loving what i'm watching so i've really come to love these designs but this one what was i thinking this is a brilliant brilliant oh, it's, design yeah it's creature. incredible it's got as much love put into it as batman's costume tell me a bit about so, it i know that a, a, a woman called millicent patrick was part of the design team or was the designer something like that yeah i mean to be honest with you as far as the creation of it goes i'm not that much more cleaned up than you i know it's a chap called rico browning was the first who played girl man and he had i think he had about 10 minutes rehearsal before they said yeah it's you and that was all based on how elegantly he swam because they wanted the girl man to be elegant and very aquatic and i think they called that off but it's become so timeless and so iconic now that it's almost a hard one to describe because it's a very sympathetic character and it looks childlike and it looks innocent. It's funny because there are there are a few goofs in the film, which you know, that's very much. And there are things that make me think that perhaps they changed the costume a couple of times throughout the production. Because at the beginning, the footprints in the sand are absolutely nothing like his feet are later on in the film. Yes. So I'm wondering whether or not there were a few ideas for his feet, for example, to make him look more human as the film progressed, because at the beginning, it's very much sort of an amphibian webbed footprint. Right. 
but later on you can see that it's not. I mean, yeah, to be honest, there's also no point in the film that you think that's a bloke in a suit. I just, I don't think you do. I think it's pulled off magnificently. The end sort of set piece, well, the journey towards the end, where uh, he's wandering around sort of the, the glades or whatever it is with um, mm. with, with the woman in his arms, and it looks perilous because it, I don't think he can see through that. So it's mm. it's really good direction. I imagine they go left, left, left. Yeah. <laughs> but and I mean, you know, they obviously didn't have a huge budget for it. And, you know, even some of the bigger film productions have mistakes. There's a certain scene in, I can't remember whether it's Evil Dead 1 or 2, where Sam's brother, Ted Raimi, is playing the, the beast that's flying around the ceiling. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can clearly see that there's no back to the costume. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. like with this, it's I've watched this so many times, just shot for shot, just watching all the movement and everything. And at no point do you think, oh, this is this is dark, this is man, it's brilliant. It's also very it's intriguing, isn't it, that even though the film was shot in black and white and it's famous for being a black and white film, yeah, we all think of them as being green. Wasn't green in the film. That's a really good point. Because, yeah, I do. And, you know, they've, they've never colorized it. I mean, I know it was done in, it was obviously originally done in 3D, but they never did a colorized version, as far as I know. Um, just black and white to me. <laughs> Once again, thank you so much to Graham Bywater for coming on to the show. I have to admit, I am dead chuffed to say that he's going to be coming back for future episodes. And yes, the rest of our chat, it took an unexpected, severe left-hand turn when we discovered that we both loved Kiss, the band Kiss. Uh, and I guess we both like kissing as well. We didn't discuss that, though. Uh, and over on Patreon in a couple of days, I'm going to put that whole conversation. Uh, we also choose some other recommendations based on the creature of the Black Lagoon. But basically, if you quite like the band Kiss, we talk about them for a long time. And I didn't want to put it in the bin, so I'm sticking it onto Patreon. So there you go. At number 33 is I Was a Teenage Werewolf. And in this one, Michael Landon's brood and sulky teen simply comes across as just a prick. It's like I'm watching my dad when I was growing up. I don't empathise or bond with the guy for the whole of the first 25 minutes build-up. I just couldn't get over that hump. Other than that, it's a pretty great movie. And we head further into the list now with The Monster That Challenged the World. It's a silly creature feature, sure, and it does ejaculate sea plasm from its head, but the establishing 25 minutes of the plot this time was really good. And it creates some really likeable characters, and that's why I'm putting it above I Was a Teenage Werewolf. But what's that? You've already mentioned it, and it is higher than Creature from the Black Lagoon. This is Plan 9 from Outer Space next. And I wanted to love this, and whilst it didn't live up to its worst film ever made reputation, it was still proper awesome in its really poor execution, abysmal acting, shitty sets. Good job, Edward D. Wood Jr. In 1959, we have It Came From Beneath the Sea. A 
tidal wave of terror engulfs the screen as a raging monster from the dawn of creation attacks the world of man. The H-bomb blasted it loose from the depths of the Pacific. But not even the H-bomb can kill it. Unknown object coming this way. Entering minefield. Stand by, number 38, mine. Fire. That's the trailer from It Came From Beneath the Sea, and in this, the Professor Leslie Joyce is written simply to be a love interest for men that can be bought for the price of a lobster dish. And there's way too much pottering around in the submarine, but the octopus effects, they are masterful. And once that annoying intro is over, the film just zips along and it turns out to be really good fun after all. And if you're counting these down, currently we are at number 29, and this is from 1957, and it is called The Monolith Monsters. There is definitely a unique big bad in this one. It is space rocks that you need to dodge because they can turn you into stone. And would you believe, if they come into contact with water, then they grow and they multiply, just like gremlins. And now, it is time for Kaltiki, the Immortal Monster. And for this one, all I would say is that a year after The Blob, Italy delivers its own Blob movie, and it's not half bad. It was ghost-directed by Barva, and just in a moment, we're going to skip over to a clip from next week's bonus extra feature episode, where I speak with graphic designer Sister Hyde. Even if you don't know the name, you will no doubt know her work, because you can find it on the covers of your Criterion, or Severin, or Arrow movies... And we did initially hook up just for this episode, but the chat was so in-depth and so varied that I compiled the whole thing into its own episode, and it is proper ace if I say so myself. But Kaltiki is just too cool a movie to skip by here, so instead I'm going to put an eight-minute insert just here. We were actually talking today about Kaltiki, the immortal monster. And this is a film that I discovered again, thanks to Arrow on a blind buy to HMV one day. And my first watch, I was okay with it. I think I gave it a half marks and I watched it again for this. And then all of a sudden things were happening that I didn't notice the first time around. It was a really great experience. Um, it's a really interesting movie. I also, Arrow announced it, and they did this great new cover-up by Graham Humphreys, who, he's, it's fucking Graham Humphreys, man. Yes. Talk about iconic, you can tell his work mile off. Nah, I'm nothing. Graham Humphreys is the shit. He's been doing this since the 80s. He did the Evil Dead 2 poster. Man, he's, he's God. And he did... This for Arrow. I think the same month he also did City of the Dead for Arrow. And I was like, those are gorgeous. And what a double bill. <laughs> and so I finally, and I've, you know, been a big Bava fan for a while. And then I was like, I don't know. It's the one of the early ones he did with Ricardo Freda. He's not technically credited. It's more his cinematography work. I'll see it eventually. I don't know about 50s monster movies. I blind bought it during an arrow sale because they there's arrow sales so wonderful and so affordable, yep. especially here in the US to have them shipped. So that's the only way to do it. Uh, and then I was like, finally popped it on one day as like a Saturday morning movie to be like, yeah, all right, 
I can deal with some camp. If it's dull, I can just like play on my phone for a little bit. It is not dull. It is one of the loudest, most inventive, wild 50s like B movies ever made. And the fact that it has only kind of gotten a little bit of prominence prominence recently is a shock to me because the fact that this movie hasn't you know developed a similar cult status as you know son of the creature or creature walks among us or uh you know black sand sunday black sabbath and the blob and quatermass and like it's doing what a lot of these other movies do and a very pulpy, very fun, entertaining way. And I think it's also public domain. So, like, <laughs> why isn't this playing on TV all the time? Why don't you hear Joe Dante talking about this movie all the time? I just think, like, it never really got an American or English language release much at all. And it got buried. And I'm so happy that we're kind of able to rediscover it. Well, it's not a secret for those that have seen it that it sort of one-ups The Blob. It's a better film than The Blob. and if Oh, you... it's a mile better than The Blob. Uh, which is so strange when um, you would listen to a podcast or it would be on a documentary about 50s movies. It's The Blob that will get mentioned. It'll never be Kaltiki. So, yes. Never. Very strange. Um, I get... And The Blob it has the Criterion release and... The Blob has Steve McQueen and it's early Technicolor. And listen, The Blob is great. It's good fun. And it's very influential. I mean, Night of the Creeps and like everything takes from The Blob because like it's called The Blob and it's got that theme song. And <laughs> the theme song's great. It's just pink jelly and it comes from outer space. It wants nothing but to consume, except if you freeze it. Side note, I've always loved that final shot of the blob just sitting in Antarctica. And I've always wanted someone to make a blob versus the thing movie. They're both stuck in Antarctica. The blob hates cold. The thing hates fire. Send them at each other. They're both <laughs> amorphous space creatures. I don't want Alien versus Predator. I want Blob versus Thing. They've missed a trick. I think that's what's happened there. They've missed. <laughs> they've missed mm -hmm. financial gold. Come um, on, John Carpenter, you get time. The thing, uh, well, not the film, the thing, but the thing I find with this one is you have to get on board straight away with what the Kaltiki is. On one of the extras. It was described as a leather version of the blob with water being poured over it, which is very strange. Yeah. Um, my wife watched it with me and she said, is that just somebody in like a bin liner? So, you know, if you can get over that initial thing, I even think the miniatures that are employed are just cute and they're, they're really good fun. The miniatures, the matte paintings, the underground, the underwater photography, the process photography this is an effects film of a really high budget like th these are all things that you know by the late mid and mid 50s in italy they could do pretty cheap and accomplish a lot of big things 
Val Luton would have killed to have half of these techniques in his movies at RKO. Like half of these special effects techniques were developed on Citizen Kane. Like it is insane and they're so well done. And like the opening sequence that blends together stock footage, matte paintings, and then miniatures of like a volcano and stuff all into one big process shot weirdly reminds me of the like jungle picnic scene in Citizen Kane or like shots from King Kong stuff that like in the 30s and 40s would have been a big deal and we'd still be talking about today as like that's a really involved process shot that's a really involved special effects thing by the mid 50s in Italy they're just doing these on a soundstage shooting what they can shoot And Bava was really like the big guy for special effects stuff and the big guy for this beautiful cinematography. But talking about Kaltiki as a blob itself, if you took the blob from the 58 film, it's stuck in black and white, it will look terrible. People that grew up watching that movie on black and white, you know, uh, cathode ray tube TVs, I feel very bad for them. (laughs) Because that movie is all about the color and that pink jelly looks so great. However, they knew Kaltiki was going to be in black and white because they did not have the money. And so Kaltiki is like, it's leather, it's textured, it's got little bumps and ridges, it's all goose pimpled. I love that. Uh, And it's crawling in a weird way and it feels more flesh-like because of that. And they give it all of these like textures and nipples and things so that it can catch the light in the black and white and be more tactile. So that was a taster from the Kaltiki special next week featuring Sister Hyde. And next up in the Also Rans is It, the terror from beyond space. This one is from 1958, and as per usual with these 50s monster movies, there is a lot of chatter going on, but this time with the threat of the monster, it's very palpable, and the majority of the dialogue is actually necessary. Unfortunately, it does get a bit sloppy in the final 20 minutes, but it's very much worth your time. Moving on, we have The Snorkel, which was again released in 1958. The door is locked from the inside and a man prepares to kill. No one in this room can survive. No one except you. The killer with a gimmick. The killer with a snorkel. That was the trailer from The Snorkel, and even though this one starts with a rather grisly murder, the will-he-or-won't-he-get-caught scenario that this film hangs itself upon it doesn't carry enough weight behind it for me to care either way whether he does. Although, just when I loved the ending and I was beginning to re-evaluate my whole opinion of it and put it really high in the list, there is a double ending and it totally eradicates any menace. It's a real shame. Following from this, we have 20 million miles to Earth from the year before, 1957. The airship... XY-21, which crashed into the Mediterranean Sea on the 11th, was a single-stage, astral-propelled rocket launched 13 months ago from a site within the United States. The rocket, with its complement of 17 men, 
had landed on the planet Venus. Venus? The planet Venus? Some of you may also have heard the story of a monster now confined here in Rome Zoo. That beast is from Venus. And with this one, I can't really be any clearer than with the letterbox synopsis, so I'm going to read it in full. Here we go. When the first manned flight to Venus returns to Earth, the rocket crash lands in the Mediterranean near a small Italian fishing village. The locals managed to save one of the astronauts, a Colonel Calder, and he was the mission commander. A young boy also recovers what turns out to be a specimen of an alien creature, and it grows at a fantastic rate. It manages to escape and eventually threatens the whole city of Rome. Back to me now. This movie is quite mad, and I've got no idea if I love it or hate it. But it does have to be watched just to understand where the USA's head was after Japan released Godzilla. It's a really interesting movie. And next up, The OG, Invaders from Mars. It's got a great opening couple of acts where too many characters are believing this raving mad boy. But if that doesn't annoy you, then there are some really long-winded army vehicle driving scenes. Lots of running around corridors. I think the remake is just as good or just as bad, however you want to see it. But yeah, Invaders from Mars. I didn't expect what I got. And to end the second part of the also-rans, we come up against the rather smashing The Bad Seed. And this is a movie where Patty McCormack is a rather nasty piece of work as an evil kid trope begins to really take its wings. Now that was a great movie. And the upcoming films that we're going to be talking about now are even better. Unfortunately though, this is where we leave the second part of the also-rans.